VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, August the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's producing the Come On with an edition of Open Line this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, we want you to pick up the phone and give us a shout. The number, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 86-26. Well, what a night for the Newhook family yesterday. Abby Newhook playing for Team Canada down on Lake Placid with the annual three-game set against the Americans. It's the national development team. Abby scores a goal for our country. Amazing stuff. And we found out yesterday as well that Alex Newhook's number 18 will be retired and hung in the rafters out of Victoria where he played junior for the Grizzlies. So in his second year with the Victoria Grizzlies, Alex was the CHL Junior A Player of the Year. So we all know the story about Abby and Alex with on the same day again with these types of achievements. <laughs> it's just wild. And everyone who watched a bit of sports, you know the importance of the broadcaster. To add the flair and the feel and the texture and the excitement or the disappointment to the broadcast. One of the all-time greats. So we're lucky enough to, of course, have Bob Cole as one of the absolute legends of hockey play-by-play. But the Buffalo Sabres play-by-play man, Rick Jenneret, also absolute gem, passed away at the age of 81. For hockey fans, you'll be able to harken back to calls like Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Every time Hasek made one of his sprawling saves, Jenneret would absolutely lose his mind. And my favorite is a Paddy LaFontaine goal, where it was la 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 Fontaine. I mean, just great stuff. Rick Jenneret gone at 81. Unfortunate. Today, we're hoping if you have the opportunity and the capacity, if you can join the folks from VOCM and VOCM Cares at the Village Mall for the annual Block the Bus campaign. We've been talking about it. We know times are tight. So if you can bring along some school supplies, backpacks being collected, there will be treats and face painting, special appearances, some music, live music between 2 and 4, and the whole event is from 1 to 6 this afternoon. If you make a donation, you'll get a ballot with a chance to win a gift certificate to shop at the Village Village Shopping Center. So if you can, please do. All right, an interesting one. On this date in history, 1868, the colorless, odorless, non-toxic gas helium was first discovered. Named, of course, the Greek titan of the sun, Helios. Norman Lockyer was the first person to propose that it was a new element, which he named. But then you go and look at some of the news stories over the years. For the fourth time since 2006, there's a helium shortage in the world. Very few countries mine and produce helium. Its most common use, of course, is in the hospitals with the magnetic resonance imaging, the MRI scanners. It's in liquid form. It can cool down semiconducting magnets, generates images for the human body, of course, as we know how the MRI works. It's used in high-speed internet, cable TV, computer hard drives, microscopes, airbags and cars, mobile phones, computers, tablet chips, and even as a coolant for nuclear reactors. Here's the problem. When we have some of these shortages, and one such shortage happened a few years ago with the blockade in Qatar, one of the major producers of helium in the world, but of course, how many birthday balloons and uh, Goodyear blimps so we can get a bird's eye view of a sporting event have we used helium for? And all the while, when shortages uh, happen, all of these really important matters are possibly shelved because of blimps and birthday balloons. On top of that, it has an impact on weather forecasting. Helium, of course, the prime uh, element used to float the weather balloons. There has even been some opportunities over the last number of years where some of the major meteorological centers have deployed fewer balloons than in the past because of a shortage of helium. But we'll tell our grandchildren, we used to use it to blow up balloons. Okay, keep going. 
Yesterday, a report that was brought forward by the Provincial Surgical Task Force was released and the government committed to implementing all 32 recommendations. Okay. You can only hope that this is good, right? And it looks like a very comprehensive, being applauded in many corners, including by Dr. Gerald Farrell, who's the president of the NLMA. We'll get more into his comments in a second. So 32 recommendations all to be implemented. Some of the main categories. All right. Measuring and monitoring wait lists. You would think that would be part of it. Improving operations and maximizing recruitment and retention of healthcare professionals. This is not to downplay the importance of the work done by the surgical task force, but it really feels like we're talking about the same things we've been talking about for an awful long time. Also talk about the creation of a centralized wait list. There are thousands of people listening to this program this morning who are on a wait list for surgery. They estimate there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 people just waiting for joint surgeries alone. And there has been an expansion of where you can get a joint replacement done, whether being Carbon, Nurse, and Anthony even talks about expanding it even further. Okay, maybe Quarterbrook, September, an outpatient rehab clinic in Gander. No real understanding about the firm timelines for implementation. Why is that? Well, for the obvious. It's a staffing issue. Like even when you go back to things like trying to free up hospital beds by putting people who belong in hospital or belong in a long-term care bed where they are. The problem, we have the beds, we don't have the staff. So not trying to oversimplify or to criticize for the sake of, but as Dr. Gerald Farrell says, this is one step, but we're not done. He goes on to point out that the community-based approach is sensible and that the list and the work done was comprehensive. But he also points out that there's nobody on a wait list that's any closer to their surgical date than they were before the release of the report. So obviously, it's best for all of us. It's a political victory if the government can try to deal with this backlog, deal with wait times, deal with access to a primary care physician or whatever the case may be. But it's just kind of where we were. How quickly can it be done? Is it going to take a couple of years for full implementation of all 32 recommendations? A final quote from the good doctor, Dr. Farrell. Ironically, it's almost like the entire system has put on a wait list because we're waiting for these recommendations to be implemented so that we can see if, if it's going to impact patient care, which, of course, is the key. Wait times. We've been talking about wait times forever and a day. And Dr. Farrell goes on to say, after uh, spending 40 years working in the province, it's concerning to see that wait times are going up again. We have the people, we just don't have the folks to staff them. And of course, we brought you a story yesterday about the fact that there's people being admitted to hospital and added pressure on emergency rooms because where they were in a personal care home or a long-term care facility, they're unable to manage the needs of that person. So they make their way to the hospital. Then there are a number of them will be admitted to hospital. And consequently, just another aggravating factor when we talk about surgical backlog and wait times, because you can only imagine. If you are waking up in constant pain with your hip or your knee, or there's maybe 4,000 people waiting for cataract surgery, every day that goes by, symptoms worsen, or vision deteriorates, or whatever procedure you're looking for, a coronary procedure, for instance, you would think that for those folks, every morning when they wake up, the first thing they think of is their pending surgery. So obviously a big deal, and let's hope that the work being done, the report that has been submitted, and the commitment by the government to implement all 32 deals with it as quickly as possible. But it does feel like talking about a lot of the very similar issues, and you know, we hope it's a good thing. All right. You know, for the longest while, when we talk about the pressures of trying to feed ourselves, the hyper-focus has been on revenue and profit for the grocery retailers. 
And now when we have folks who are much more in tune with the issues, like Sylvain Charlebois, pointing at the fact that manufacturers are actually playing a role here too. You know, with skimpflation and shrinkflation and shelfflation, a lot of these things were not really part of the discussion. It was all about the big, bad grocery store retailers and the amount of money they're bringing in the door. Their margins haven't changed a whole, whole lot. The Competition Bureau says that they're up, but not in a more meaningful way than it has been in years past. So maybe just a different way to think about food and some of the issues that we have to deal with and the people that need to be, I think, more of a focus on the broader scope as opposed to simply profitability for the big, the big three. You know who we're talking about. All right. This one's been always very difficult to talk about, but it's part of health care, I suppose. When a medical assistance in dying was first brought to bear and allowed by legislation, if the thought was that if people have absolutely no hope, the prognosis is dire. There is no cure. The insufferable pain and suffering is obvious to the individual and to their family. And for the opportunity, through a fairly lengthy process in dealing with your doctor and your family, to talk about whether or not that's a possibility or something you'd like to consider. Now we know that the made legislation and laws are far too permissive in my opinion, probably amongst the most permissive laws in the world. Now there's a really concerning proposal coming from Health Canada that's got a bunch of folks regarding the ethics of medicine quite concerned. And here's what it says. The proposed guidelines published by Health Canada suggest doctors and nurse practitioners are required to bring up and required to bring up unsolicited topic of medical assistance in dying. So you're there looking for treatment and help and support, maybe some possible cures or pharmaceuticals, and then in an unsolicited fashion, something that might not have even crossed your mind, you're, you're asked, what do you think about medical assistance in dying? So whether it be with a mobility issue and a housing problem, a mental health concern, a veteran in the Canadian forces, it just seems to be a little bit too more pervasive and permissive than was originally thought of. Because yes, if you have absolutely no hope and every day is a mighty and massive struggle, it might be something you want to talk about with your doctor. But just imagine, we've heard stories about this in the past. You know, if the issue is whether or not you have supports at home or in the community that can make you live a manageable life, maybe not the best life with a medical concern that would be as severe as anybody who ever considers made, but we've gone a step too far. We just really have. You know, it is not a go-to solution for dealing with health care. It's for people to end their lives. In some circum circumstance, it might be. But the folks who are looking at the ethical issues surrounding this new proposal from Health Canada, it's hard to say they're wrong. Because just imagine sitting there and all of a sudden someone's talking about medical assistance and dying. Wait, no. I was looking for help. I was looking for support. I was looking for some treatment, course of treatment, and then MAID is brought up in an unsolicited fashion. I don't know. I know that's a tricky conversation, and maybe not one that people are willing and wanting to have too openly, but it's something we should be thinking about, and absolutely pushing back if you think that's the appropriate course of action. All right, a couple of quick ones in the courts. 
So <laughs> air travel, it's a frustrating conversation. And air travel's never been great, but it seems to be worse than ever. And so now the Supreme Court of Canada is going to take up an appeal coming from the airline industry themselves. This is all about the protections for air travelers, compensation for air travelers, whether it be your flight was canceled or delayed, uh, lost baggage, whatever the case may be. So they're suggesting that the moves taken by the Canadian Transportation Agency are too stern, too stiff. The government directed the agency to create between 18 and 19 obligations for the airlines in case of all the aforementioned flight delays, cancellations, boarding denial, lost or damaged luggage. The fact of the matter is, the Canadian Transportation Agency has a backlog as long as your arm. And that's if you microprint. So here's the backlog. 52,000 complaints as of July the 23rd. That's three times the number that it had a year before. In March back in 23, uh, this March in 23, the federal government announced almost $76 million in new CTA funding over the three years to reduce that backlog. So the backlog of complaints is growing. Airlines still want to be held to account for their role in our air booked travel. So the Supreme Court is going to hear the case. They just released their list of cases they will be hearing uh, just a day, or so, a day or two ago, and that's one of them. Amazing stuff. All right, a couple of quick notes. I know when we flick on the news, sometimes it's really quite dire, and especially when we look at some of the provinces and territories that are being absolutely pummeled with wildfires. And we can get into it. There's, you know, it's an unfortunately bizarre conversation that's being held in some corners regarding wildfires. But the reality is, as of August 17th, there was 5,760 fires had burnt over 13 million hectares of land, 4% of the entire forest area of Canada, and more than five times the long-term average of 2.38 million. As of now, there's over 1,000, was 1,062 active wildfires, 671 were deemed to be out of control. And here's a number, regardless of what you think about fire mitigation measures, whether it be someone who lit a fire, climate change related matters, the drought experience in some parts of the world and in this country, there's been over 155,000. 155,856 people have been evacuated this year. Those number of evacuees, because of wildfires in 2023, will represent the 19th most populated city or town in the country. Almost 156,000 people have been evacuated as of yesterday. Okay. So I don't know if you've got plans to go to the Churchill Park, uh, to the music festival tonight, to hear Canadian pop icon Alanis Morissette. I know some of the local media have had a great time interviewing her. She's a great interview. I go back and think about one of the interviews I saw Tom Power do with her. Terrific stuff. So it's going to be a great night in the park. I bring it up specifically, not because of simply Alanis Morissette, but we have heard complaints from people in the region or the area uh, post-show and the behavior of some concert goers, whether it be with using their property as a urinal, those types of things. So hopefully folks will just disperse and make their way elsewhere after the show is over. I think she hits the stage about 9.30. And just a quick note, uh, this date in history, 1977, the police played live for the first time ever as a three-piece band in Birmingham, England. The punk, reggae, jazz style, one of the first new wave groups to absolutely achieve mainstream success, and that was back in 1977. And I told the good folks at the Jacob Puddister Foundation I would pump the tires on their car show this weekend. Let me find it. That's not it. And here we go. So the 
uh, annual Shifting Gears Car Show for the Jacob Puddister Memorial Foundation is on August 20th at 2 p.m. at the Ken Williams Arena up in Mobile. So the Southern Shore. So that's the Jacob Puddister Shifting Gears Car Show. Please do indeed go out. Take in the vintage and antique autos and more awareness. Maybe a donation to the Jacob Puddister Foundation offering mental health services and counseling to the province's youth. All right, we're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you have to join us live on the program. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board. Line number one and say good morning to one of the three candidates vying to be the next leader of the PC party of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Eugene Manning. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad. Listen, uh, a bit of a different gear, Patty, this morning. I wanted to call and talk about, I think, in the past 24, 48 hours, we've had a couple of more deaths here in the uh, in the capital city uh, related to the fentanyl-laced cocaine here in the city. And that's a that's an overdose. I think that's 14 or 15 in the past 30 days. And um, it's continuing, Patty. And I, I think it's a, a public service issue as much as anything to get it out there that this is a real crisis that we're facing here, not just here in the city, in uh, across the province. I've heard issues in Happy Valley, Goose Bay, and Labrador from one end of the province to the other. And uh, it's something that I think we need to keep in the fore and keep discussed so that people are aware that they're out there. Well, no community, no province is immune to it, is rampant. You know, some people, I think, are rightfully calling this an opioid crisis. But, of course, with all of the societal stigma associated with addiction, it probably doesn't get a whole lot of attention, and people are just dropping like flies. Maybe that's a little bit of a flimsy way or lackluster way to put it, but it's an absolutely serious matter. Yes, and it's it, it's not just one segment of society. It, it's across all. Um, my wife mentioned to me this morning. She's looking into today how we could have a locks on kit in our house just because of where we live. Um, we, you know, we see people who are obviously in the in the depths of addiction and suffering, and uh, it 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 hits across a variety of government departments and services and things, Patty. And it's uh, I what prompted this call this morning was see a poster from the guys down to Newfoundland Embassy yesterday, and they're offering a locks on training session at. at there and they've gone to bars. I think that's a great public service that they're doing. I think they're uh, teamed up there with Thrive and Eastern Health. And I think the larger issue here is, uh, look, this is not a one solution. This is a, this is a massive issue across numerous government departments and people. And I, I know everyone is trying their best, and I, I believe they are. I think what we need, Patty, is uh, we need a vision articulated to us as to how all of these things come together. Uh, the addiction issue, the treatment issue, um, how that relates to crime uh, across the province, the housing crisis, the cost of living. This is not for a single silo in the government department. This is a, a provincial issue which needs provincial leadership on. It's always been very much considered a criminal justice matter. And of course, for those who are trafficking in these uh, illicit drugs and for some reason adding fentanyl, which is killing their customers, it's just, you know, the criminal justice angle, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again because I think it's irrefutable, is that the war on drugs has been a horrible failure. It just has. The trillions of dollars spent in North America on the war on drugs, not one thing has changed. In fact, it's gotten worse. So if we just even consider it more of a health issue, then possibly we'll make better decisions and put better policies in place. Some people get really frustrated when you talk about harm reduction policies and safe injection and regulated, regulated supply, you know, as if you're enabling somebody. Somebody who knows they can get a clean needle doesn't mean, well, now that I know I get a clean needle, well, here comes the heroin addiction. I just don't think that that's how the world operates. So a bit more of a healthcare focus here is probably will probably serve us better 
because if we're just think, thinking that every time someone is caught with drugs or selling drugs and we put them in prison, even for a lengthy amount of time, the backfill for users and the backfill for dealers has been readily available for decades. We have we just got to stop kidding ourselves on this. It, it has to be a multi-pronged approach, and, and on the crime issue, I know where I live here in the city, uh, since I started this campaign, actually, our cars were broken into four times. Sure. Um, I, I think you mentioned about the fob by the door. We, we figure that's one of our, our issues, I think you mentioned on your on, on the show yesterday. And But it goes hand in hand. These things, if they're not addressed, like coming back, if it's not considered a health issue and addressed at the source, these things permeate into other parts of society. Look, in, our, in my extended group and... and how these things hit. I have a, um, I know some young volunteers on my campaign. They were talking about um, um, celebrating this weekend, and I don't think any of them uh, uh, partake. But it has gotten so so acute in front of your face. And I sent them a text this morning. I said, "Remember, guys, I was like this thing is real for everyone, and uh, to keep an eye out because it it affects all parts of society, and uh, it's something that we really need to put a focus on and come back these community groups and engagements. I just think that." Um, I think it's something that we need to discuss more. We need to take away the stigma of it. Um, it affects many families, many know people in their extended family. And I think it's just uh, it's something that we as a society in the province really have to take on. Yeah, I, I hesitate to mention very specific neighborhoods and the problems that they're facing, but they're happy to talk about it publicly themselves. So let's just take the, the Livingstone Street neighborhood here in the city. Even if you are one of those folks who thinks that, you know, we should... Stop worrying about them because they made their bed, let them lie in it, in- including that bed might end up being a coffin. It's in- it, like, just imagine being the hard-working, normal, everyday, trying to get along, trying to get ahead family with no involvement with crime, no involvement with drugs, but now where you live has been compromised to the, fact where, to the point where you don't feel safe walking to your car. These people also have to be part of the conversation because it's impacting so many different folks. You might not even know anybody who does these drugs. You might not have ever tasted or attempted uh, to take them yourself, but it's impacting your life, whether it be your safety, the peace and quiet of your neighborhood. It's just out there bigger than ever before. Like the numbers of overdoses, I don't even know if we get the full picture and the full reporting of them. Sometimes someone compiles some data for us, but to think that we have acknowledged every single overdose and some of these things, once again, folks, it doesn't have to start in the uh, shady, dreary, dark corners of society in some sort of back alley. It could have happened and begun right there in a doctor's office. So we just need to have a better, more well-rounded and whether that the multi-pronged approach is the right phrase, I can take it because I think you're right. It's more to it than simply, well, you know, let's find the drugs, let's arrest them and put them in jail and all of a sudden we pretend that's going to actually be the solution when it's part of it. People involved, especially the dealers, people involved in trafficking have to be taken into account. But that does not clean up the street. No, it, it has to go across the board. And But to your point on, on the community policing front, um, I know in my own personal situation, um, my little guy, he gets up pretty early and we used to go to the park some mornings early at 6.30. My wife doesn't take him to the park at 6.30 in the morning anymore because she doesn't feel safe there. And so these things, these things go right through society and, and they impact us all, whether we are directly exposed to it or not. But it has, to be, it, it has to be addressed. It has to be discussed. The stigma around it has to come apart. And uh, you read any of these Facebook groups of late and the stories you hear about people and, and, and how they fell into addiction, whether it be, like you said, in the doctor's office or the pharmacy or elsewhere. But um, I'm, I'm not putting blame on anyone. I'm just no, saying no. that it's, it's something that really, I, I think... 
to articulate a strong vision as to how all these things come together and, expl- and, and to be more clear to people on how these different facets of government and programs all interact with this issue and tackle it, I think it'd be a strong step in providing leadership into, into how we solve it. And, and it's good that the province has talked about expanding uh, treatment for adults, but of course treatment is an after-the-fact issue as well, right? Now, if Humberwood, one of the two adult treatment facilities in the province, has is 90% capacity, a six-week assessment, which means that someone who thought, well, today's the day I'm getting help, they might not feel that way and take advantage of it in a month from now or five weeks or six weeks from now. So there's a bunch of different areas on the addictions treatment front that's got to be also be part of the conversation because we're never going to pretend that there will be no such thing as drugs or no such thing as addictions on the street because that's it's just too silly to think about it from that angle. So we just got to we have to do better. Uh, Eugene, appreciate the time this morning. Last comment before I say goodbye. Yeah, Patty, just to switch gears for a second, the membership deadline for the leadership closed this past Tuesday, and I just wanted to send her to thank you um, to our hundreds of volunteers uh, that worked, and also to the party. I know it was a struggle a struggle for the party itself um, to get this through. There was a, a, a pending issue and a confirmation membership. You might have saw the news, but yep. um, just to remind everyone who was a bit hassled by it, everyone's a volunteer, whether they're calling on my behalf, one of the other campaigns, or the party. Um, they're all trying their best, so it might have been a bit of a, a difficult few days, but I want to say thank you to everyone for that as well, and I look forward to talking to you again. Appreciate uh, the time. Good luck, Eugene. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Eugene Manning. One of three, including uh, Lloyd Parrott and Tony Wakeham, who want to be the next PC leader. Let's go to line number two. Keith, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Doing very well. Thanks. How about you? Well, pretty good, I guess. I'm sitting here now in my hotel room, I guess, at the Health Science Centre. <laughs> How long have you been there? Uh, as of today, I'm here 25 days waiting for triple bypass surgery with no sight in line to have my surgery done over the course of the 25 days keith had you thought well today they told me i'm getting my surgery just to find out at the 11th hour that no you're not no uh it's a procedure that they have to follow you have to uh you wait to get your you come in actually i came in to have a, a stress test done and uh I well, I'm fighting this now in the last four or five years to try to get in. Cause I knew it was trouble with me somewhere down the line. I had to make a certain deal. Anyway, I came in to get a stress test done, and I uh, went and done the stress test. The doctor looked at me. He said, "Well, sit down there on the table." I sat down on the table. He wrote me out a note for a prescription to take home with me, and then he looked at me. He said, "Nope, give me back that note." He said, "You're staying." <laughs> he didn't like what he seen on the screen. So I came close to being sent home again after going through this for my four years, five years. Anyway, so they sent me for a stress test. Uh, a dye test actually six days later, five days later. Found out I had eight blockages. 150, 670s, and uh, 90%. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to go from there. And... Uh, so they say, uh, okay, uh, you'll have to wait now to get on the list to get in and have your surgery. You have to wait. It was a waiting list. You had to wait. And anyway, they came and told me I had my surgery. So after, uh, I'm, I'm accepted to have surgery. <laughs> so then uh, it's, uh, they say the wait list is up to three weeks. And so I'm still here waiting. And I, have, I keep asking, is there any time that's, I will be getting done, or anyone can fill me in. No. 
don't have it. <laughs> Keith, I hear the what I'll characterize as the nervous giggle because I know people have to do everything they can to try to keep the anxiety at bay and the worry at yeah. bay. But this might seem like a silly question, but in honesty, how do you feel every day when you wake up knowing that today is not the day I'm getting my surgery, but today is the day where I might have a heart, heart attack? Exactly. And, then, and I'm here, and I've never had a heart attack. And while my heart is still <clears throat> somewhat, you call it, healthy, before there's more damage done to me, I'm just put on the sideline. And I guess anyone else that comes in with a heart attack is done before me, and I'm left behind again. So now it's the weekend again, and there's nothing getting done the weekend like this. I don't know if they can get people to come in on the weekends and do these surgeries and clear it up, which would... I've asked how long would the surgery take, and they say, uh, well, the surgery could take up to six to seven hours, and it's two days recovery, and then you're gone. Gee, sounds good to me. So we can get this out of the way, you know? It's, it's crazy. Yeah, I know someone who's waiting for heart procedure as well, and you can see it in their face. They don't say, oh, my God, I'm so scared or what have you, but you can tell. You can smell it often. They're really oh, no, terribly worried. Yes, well, Patty, you wake up every morning, and uh, you're sitting in a, in a room with this on your mind every day and wondering, well, what's going to happen, you know? I can only imagine, and it's, but obviously it has an impact on your friends and a bigger one on your family. So exactly, yeah, these stories aren't simply about the person in the hotel room at the Health Sciences Center. No. Uh, Keith, what, what would you, what else would you like to say before we run out of time this morning, sir? No, that's that's about all. I just like just <laughs> see if anyway anything I can get done with this. I was even asked if I could fly to Ottawa to get done with it. If it could be any quicker, just to to get a, get on with my life, you know. And that's right, because we have a uh, formal relationship with the Coronary Center in Ottawa, and that's yes, been exactly. used, I don't know how many times, but yeah. No. That partnership is real. They've actually sent surgeons here to try to help us deal with our coronary surgery backlog. Uh, yes. I, listen, fingers crossed. Uh, hope you get taken care of ASAP and then a speedy recovery, Keith, and I appreciate the call. Thanks, Patty. Take good care of yourself. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we go back, Ruby wants to talk about a rally coming up on the Steps of Confederation building on this coming Wednesday. Then Abby French is from the Single Parents Association. She joins us right after this. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to Abby French with the Single Parents Association. She's the Employment Services Lead. Good morning, Abby. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. Thanks. How about you? Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Happy to do it. (laughs) Awesome. So it's a busy morning here at Spanel as we're packing and preparing for our big Block the Bus event this afternoon at the Village Mall Shopping Center with, of course, the VOCM Cares Foundation. So we're super excited and getting ready to head on over to quite literally block the bus. Let's <laughs> let's hope we block it to the absolute rafters. Oh, so for give, sure. give us an idea of the need. I try to talk about this stuff, Abby. I see it in my email inbox. I see it in the community. We talk about the pressures on, whether it be Bridges to Hope and your group and yeah. everybody else out there who's trying to help. Give us an idea and some compare and contrast the wait list this year the number of people you're trying to help versus maybe years past yeah so we have a goal this year of a thousand backpacks so that's a thousand children across all of newfoundland and labrador who we're trying to provide back to school support for for their school 
their upcoming school year. Right now, we have almost 700 families registered, and of course, we're basically only halfway through August, and that number is the number I got this morning, so I can tell you it's probably most likely grown since then. So we're, we're getting lots of families registering, and lots of people need some help. What are the estimates about just how much it costs for the basic necessities to go back to school? I know it changes from uh, you know primary to elementary, junior high, and high school, but what sort of average price tag are we talking about? Yep. So, I mean, for the average elementary school backpack, we're looking at, I would say, at least $100 a backpack. And, of course, once you get into junior high and high school, you're looking at even more because they're needing the scientific calculators. They're needing the big binders, the special supplies, and all of that kind of a thing. So, you're looking at at least 100 to $150, maybe even $200 a backpack. So, for a family who, you know, is depending on their paychecks and a single parent family especially, that's, that's a big hit for them at this time of the year, especially coming out of the summer. So we're trying to definitely help as many families as we can. Never want to disparage anybody who finds themselves in a difficult situation. But, you know, to know the numbers of people that are looking, whether it be neighbors in need on Facebook, everyone's got a wait list here. It's a sad commentary. I mean, I sit in a chair on a show where I hear a lot of pretty devastating stories, but you work with people who are struggling day in and day out. It's sometimes a bit overwhelming. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's the type of thing where we pick up the phone and we don't know what we're what the call is going to be about. So we try to be really well-rounded here in that, you know, we have something for everybody. We really like to call, tell everyone that we're a one-stop shop for single-parent families all across Newfoundland and Labrador. So, you know, whether it's food, we can provide them some support with back to school, Christmas time, employment, we try to help them with everything. So, and I mean, when they come to us, we don't ask them anything about income. So it's really, we try to make it as safe as a place for them as possible. Talk about the employment services uh, program and policies at your group. Yeah, so our employment services program uh, is designed for single parent families who are currently receiving income support. Uh, so it's a nine week virtual program. So people all across Newfoundland and Labrador can take part in it. Um, and basically we provide them with skills as far as resume building, interview skills. We have guest speakers. We provide um, certificate trainings when we can. And we really provide them with one-on-one support to kind of give them that extra support as far as getting back into the workforce or, you know, going to school. Because for a long time, you know, a lot of parents being a parent was their main job. So it's really just giving them that boost of confidence and giving them that support that they might need to get back into chasing their own dreams. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, part of chasing your dreams is all the time that you may have been able to spend in a family with two caregivers, two parents. It's just a very different uh, experience for a single parent. Do you have much in the way of daycare frustration calls? Because you can go through your employment services, get some additional training, find yourself a job, but then, of course, the complicating factor with somewhere put your children not everyone has nana pop willing to step up or a neighbor or a friend they need regulated or unregulated daycare spaces how complicated is that for you and the people you serve Oh, it's something we certainly face every single day, you know, with single parent families coming through the employment program. And, you know, even ones who aren't in the employment program who are just reaching out to us wondering if we have any kind of support like that. And I mean, like you said, as a single parent family, they don't have often the same level of support that a double parent family would have. So, I mean, and while some do, there's a lot that don't. So it is something we certainly face and we're working with families, I would say, on a weekly basis to try and navigate for them. One more before we pump the tires on Block the Bus. You know, it's quite clear in the name of the organization, Single Parent Association. Are there any supports for the children of single parents at your group? 
Oh, my gosh, absolutely. I mean, we have, of course, our back-to-school program here now. Uh, so we're basically providing support for the children. And, of course, Christmas time as well, we're providing support for them. So, you know, really providing that support for you know, the children of the single parents. And I mean, we always like to say, you know, that while most of our programs are designed specifically for the parents, in turn, it's also benefiting the children. Because I mean, if it means they have that little bit of extra snacks to go to school with them the next day, or they have those nicer, you know, school supplies that their friends have, or the Christmas gifts that they asked for, we always like to say, while we're directly supporting the children, or the parents, we're indirectly supporting the children with all of our programs. Sure. And of course, you know, the judgment is real and the keeping up with the Joneses is real. Some people, yep. they go overboard with, but others don't even have one hope of even pretending they're competing on that front. And it's real. And it's unfortunate. Yep. Uh, Abby, one more time. So Black in the Bus, 1 to 6 this afternoon at the Village Mall. Bring your supplies, backpack, and everything that you can think of for a required back-to-school backpack full of stuff. Uh, face painting and treats. There'll be live music from 2 to 4. If you make a donation, you get a chance to win a gift certificate from the Village Shopping Center just to dangle another carrot out there to hope that you can participate this year. Absolutely. We're going to have music there from Music NL. We might even have a visit from Buddy the Puffin Jr., hopefully. So we, everyone loves to see him pop by. And I'd also like to say, you know, if someone isn't able to make it today, of course, we would love to see everybody there, but there's lots of ways to give. Stop by our office with some school supplies. We are regularly posting a school supplies list on our website or on our social medias of things that, you know, we're running a little bit low on or we're noticing the demand is super high for. Um, you can donate directly online with a monetary donation or, you know, just head on over to our website for volunteer opportunities and things like that. So we're always looking for, we're trying to expand our ways of people being able to give, for sure. Good to have you on, Abby. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. And I'd just like to say as well, for single-parent families all across Newfoundland and Labrador, it isn't too late to register. So head on over to our website and follow the link or give us a call. And, you know, we'd love to support you. So please don't hesitate. Terrific. Good luck. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Abby. Bye-bye. Bye. Abby French is Employment Services Lead with the Single Parents Association. Let's keep rolling here. Jada Jasmine Jones is a recent graduate from Munn's Ocean Naval Architectural Engineering Program. But even after she's convoked, that's not the end of the story. We're joined on line number four by Jada. Good morning, Jada. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Let's get the background here. So congratulations on your successes and having convoked from Memorial University, but the financial tale is not completely told. What's going on? Um, so thank you very much. So just a bit of a background. This is kind of a year-long process starting from last year during um, the summer of one of my academic terms. So I got approved for a grant from the government of Belize. That's where I'm from, Belize. Um, and there has been a bit of a hiccup with how the banking situation was going on back in my home country. So even though like this grant got approved that summer, it didn't come in until that October. And during the summer, they, I was told that if I don't pay um, for that academic semester, that I would basically have my work term, which would be that fall, get taken away from me. So in my state of panic, because I do need like a work term to live, I went to the financial office to try to make a payment plan, but I was basically rejected without causal, without any sort of um, help or opposition. And when I brought in, like, the head of my engineering department, I brought in 
um, the internationalization office to see if they can help me, um, like, get this approved. Um, all of a sudden, during the um, August, I all of a sudden got approved only because I brought these people into the situation. And I had to pay a lot of money out of pocket, even though these funds were going to come in um, in my state of panic. And now um, I have this amount of money in, in my account. And during my last semester, which was this year, this um, winter of 2023, they told me that I cannot get a refund back and that it would have to be sent back to the country of origin. I've tried dealing with them on my own. I've tried seeing if there's any way to get a check, get some kind of um, way to get, um, what do you call it, uh, like to, to the bank and everything. But I've been met with a lot of hostility, a lot of, look, it should be common sense, basically, and it's a well-established policy that I cannot find um, that, that, you know, that's not the way how refunds work and everything. So I've just been trying to contact them. I've been trying to email. I've been trying to call. But at every turn, it's been hey, there's nothing we can do about it. And then I brought in my partner, a Canadian, to see if he could talk to them on my behalf. And all of a sudden, there's been a little bit more of a conversation when he's in the room. (laughs) It sounds kind of complicated. I hope I'm not missing part of the story here. So you say you wrote $5,487.53. So is all of your studies and all the tuition and fees all paid in full? It is. And the back, it was the lag time between monies coming from Belize to the university that needed you to come out of pocket. You did. And so they've collected almost $5,500 more than required for your studies. So what's the reason? You can tell me it's a well-established policy, but what's the reason if you've overpaid that they can't give it back? Is there any, like, clear-cut reason? High of 21. I... Honestly, I, 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 I wish I knew because I've tried explaining the, the situation at hand and yet they've said that how, you know, it needs to go back through how it came in. But that's just not true because people, a lot of students get direct deposits, a lot of students get checks. And yet for me, it's like it needs to go back through the country of origin. That's not how this works. So I've been trying to see if I could... Um, get to the government of education in Belize to try to see if I can get a letter stating that they can release the funds to me. But because I'm all the way out here, that's kind of a bit difficult. (laughs) But yes, as you said, the situation is very complicated. But at the same time, there's been a lot of lack of communication. Um, So um, my partner is also here. He's done like a lot of research like on the facts on how like the transfers work uh, so he can jump in and explain that if that you don't mind. Hello. I'm sorry, you asked me a question. Pardon me. 
Sorry. Um, no, I, I was I was saying that um, my partner is also here and that he can explain the facts um, on how the like the processes works because he's also done like a lot of um, talking with them. Sure. We'll have a quick uh, chat with your partner, but very quickly, you come from a coastal country. So with your degree in ocean naval architecture engineering, are you planning to stay here or are you planning to go home? What does the future look like? I plan to stay here in Newfoundland because um, with my studies and, uh, and everything, I find that there is a future here in Canada and I'd like to stay in um, Newfoundland and Labrador for at least another couple of years. Well, we hope you do. Uh, hopefully this works out for you and your partner, Jada. I'm going to put you on hold so I can take a break on time. When we come back, we'll get the final explainer from your partner, and we'll wrap it up at that point. How does that sound? Sure thing. Terrific. Okay, so Jada's on hold. We'll take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go back to line number four. Jada, you're back on the air. Yes, hello? Hello. So let's have the final explainer and the update from your partner before we say goodbye, and I wish you good luck. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Hello? Hello there. Good morning. Hi, this is Luke. Uh, Patty? Yes, sir. Yeah. yeah, that's me. Hi. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Jada's common-law spouse there, um, and I've been with her throughout the process. So uh, just in terms of the explanation from the technical bit to, to the audience here, um, so here's how it goes, right? So throughout this process, it's been cited that it's against refund policy to, um, to do international refunds unless they're going to the origin or sponsor of payment. Um, throughout the academic calendar, when Jada's attended school from 2018 up until this year where she congregated June 1st, uh, that situation is not explained in the academic calendar. The document which they have continually referred us to Right. Um, same with their financial reports, very limited verbiage around refunds or overpayments. So when we finally went to the um, the cashier's office and we said, look, you know, there, there really isn't an explanation here. We've been met with hostility. So the transfer she was referring to earlier was um, swift transfers. Right. So usually. Um, the situation that the university is referring to is a wire transfer service called Convert. It used to be called Global Union West or Western Union uh, Global Pay, and in their terms of service, on the one FAQ section that Mon has, right about that, if you're using that service, it needs to go back through the payment of origin, right? They did a switch transfer. It doesn't really qualify. So now we're at the juncture where they have said that they need a, um, an endorsement from the government of belief. Um, this information is new and actually was suggested by Jada um, in a meeting um, where they said they wouldn't necessarily release it, but they would review it if we were to get official letterhead. Um, so there's been, I think, a bit of confusion in the media where there has been some articles that have said this is the official policy. In fact, that policy does not exist. Um, I'm not sure if that kind of helps shed a bit of light on the technical aspect. It, it does. But, and final question, because I do have to take another call. Have there been conversations with country of origin being Belize that if indeed the transfers made to them that the money will end up back in Jada's hands? So right now that's an ongoing conversation. So over the past few months, we've been lucky enough to have her family represent her, um, her father in particular, through power of attorney since he was able to establish the um, application for grant. So right now we're in talks with the CEO of the Ministry of Education and I think it's Information Technology of Belize. Um, so we're hopeful 
um, that, you know, their endorsement can say because these expenses were meant to be used for tuition and off-campus living expenses. However, where both of us had to take second jobs to show good faith to try to get that original payment plan accepted, that took intervention from several departments to actually get that put through. Um, the money is owed back, but she doesn't have a Belize bank account because she left the country when you were like, what, 18? Yeah. So hopefully um, they'll talk to us, uh, Manuel. That's what we're asking for. We just want to talk. Um, you know, we understand matters are complicated, but we just want to talk. Uh, Luke, I appreciate uh, your perspective and input here this morning. Say goodbye once again to Jada for me, and thanks for the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Take care, Luke. All right, thank goodbye. you. <laughs> Convoluted, <laughs> to say the least. All right, let's go to line number five. Good morning, Ruby. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Patty, I just want to uh, send out there for your listeners to let them know that about the mass rally that we're having on Confederation Steps on Wednesday, August the 23rd at 2 p.m. And, of course, this rally is our concerns about the addictions and the right that addiction people should have. And what do you mean by that? Well, right now, uh, if, if you're an addicted, uh, addicted person and you're in the streets and you're using or you're doing, where, uh, where do you turn? Where do you go? Who is there to help you? Fair question. This is what we're looking for, help for those people. We can't help what we've lost. God forbid that it ever happens again. But I think we lost one even as late as yesterday. And it's, it's just whatever, for whatever reason, it just seems to be getting worse and worse. And our uh, thing in all of this Every addictive life matters. And we want to have a voice in, we are the voice of the government. We just need the help from all levels. It doesn't matter whether it will be uh, your help by putting out our message or the help from the person that's going to put the dollars there to put what I would call a safe haven for our people to go, whether they be, but it starts with a teenager and sometimes leads on into adults because if you go in on the Facebook and read all of the testimonies there from, from addictive parents and families, it's heart-wrenching because they have nowhere to turn. So we want to have a voice, and we're going to have that voice on Confederation Steps on the 23rd of August. I don't know if there's more people addicted than ever before. It seems like it, but no question, the drugs are much more dangerous and addictive and deadly. You know, the, the synthetic drugs that people are taking and are addicted to, they've turned into absolute zombies. It's it's mind-blowing to see what's going on. Ruby, has addiction touched you in your family? Yes, it has. I, uh, I'll just touch a little bit on it. I took into my home. I used to run an open custody home for young offenders. I took a young boy in my home when he was 16 years old for one month. 
that was what he was supposed to stay. I kept him. He was 16 at the time. And I buried him at 32. He was given drugs. He was medicated from the time he was four years old. And, of course, the Redland went from one to another to another to another. I watched him. I sat with him go through two open-heart surgeries because of the valve being shot with drugs. He came back to life. Then I watched him go through a stroke from overdose of drugs, and then I buried him at 32 years old. And he was a young guy that lived in my house till he was 26. When he got 26, he went out in apartments and boarding houses and wherever he could find a place to live. But I never left him. I always brought him food. I probably enabled him. I've done many things that I wish I had the help back then that should be there now for the people. So it has touched me in a way that I get to now visit the cemetery. I don't get to visit him. And there's many parents and family out there that have that same message. So we need help, and we have to fight for it. And believe me, we're coming out in numbers. We're not coming out one person trying to fight to see a psychiatrist with a wait list of two or three years. Those people on drugs or mental health can't wait two or three years. They don't have that lifespan, believe me. Ruby, before I go to the news, remind folks uh, the day and time of this rally at Confederation Building. This rally is on August the 23rd at 2 p.m. on the steps of Confederation Building. We already have committed parents that have gone through what we have gone through that is going to speak. We have people that are going through it today that's willing to speak and we have some of our government officials that are speaking and we welcome anyone that has a message to get out there to come and support this cause we need to get it out there I agree in full. I appreciate your time. Good luck with this. And uh, for folks who are just wondering, uh, the 23rd is next Wednesday afternoon. Yes, it is. Thank you. Rain or shine. Rain or shine. Rain or shine. We're going to be there. Good luck with it, and I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. Uh, Let's see. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the Newfoundland Railway, we'll talk about the oil industry and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Hello there, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing great, Tom. How about you? Boy, I can't complain. I'm still above the sod. Oh, boy. What's on your mind this morning? Listen here. Now, I was talking about the railway. My dad was worked with the railway for 43 years. My granddad, he worked there for 50 years. And I want to get hold to the Holy Road. I got keys belong to the railway that used to unlock 
and switch over the rails. That's pretty cool. So obviously an artifact that was given to you or passed down by either dad or granddad. Uh, granddad, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you're trying to find a home for it or you're trying to speak with others who had family members working on the railway? What are you trying to get? Well, New- Newfoundland Railway. Yeah. My granddad was there for 50 years. My dad was there for, I think it was uh, 40 years. I don't know now for fact. But anyway, I got pictures of Newfoundland Railway. And I'm going to tell you what. I can remember when I, I, I live in Brigus, okay. and I don't mind telling you. And we can remember when down here in, on the top of the road, uh, there was a switch station there. And they used to unlock the, the locks for the railway and switch them over. And then when the, the train was coming through, we offload... Uh, flour, sugar, milk, oh, I don't know what the hell was in there. It was a train car they used to bring the, the groceries in there. I mean, it's got a brilliant history, and many people bemoan the fact that it's gone away. Have you contacted yeah. uh, the folks at the Railway Coastal Museum? Yeah, I, uh, no, I never, but anyway, I got the number. I was talking to your, uh, your co-worker. Yep. Anyway, and I'm going to tell you what. I you know something. Put jokes out of one side. I would like to see the railway back again, because the roads is not fit to drive over. But anyway, the railway never, ever, ever, ever should left Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, that gauge issue was. I'm not so sure how appropriately it was handled. And rail travel is brilliant. You know, having lived in Western Canada, there it is quite. I'm not going to say glamorous, but it's a cool way to travel. And plus, when you yeah. talk about traffic congestion and all the rest of it, the train would be, I think, widely used if there was still such a thing as a passenger trail service here, a uh, train service here. Of course, there are some train services for commercial application in Labrador, yeah. but nothing on the island. Uh, Tom, no. so uh, Dave gave you a number, did he? Yeah, he gave me a number. I think it was 739-1892. Okay, yeah, Dave's a good one for getting the appropriate info out there. So. I'm going to tell you what. Now, listen here. I got a Dave now next door to me who used to work the VOCM. Oh, is that right? <laughs> Dave Munder. Dave Munder. Oh, yeah, cool. Bit uh, bit. Dave, uh, I'm going to tell you what. Uh-huh. Dave is the number one man. I'm not so sure I've ever met Dave Monder. I don't think so. No. Uh, well, they used to do the morning shows and uh, and uh, Chapel Show. Sh- Hold on, now wait, wait. Chapel Show shortings on Sunday morning. Okay. Well, and say hello to Dave for me. Uh, what? Say hello to Dave for me. Yes, indeed, no will. But anyway, Patty, you're doing a great show, and I'm going to tell you what. I can't wait to get up in the morning from Monday to Friday and put on your show. I really appreciate that, Tom, and I certainly appreciate your time this morning. Okay, God love you anyway. You take care. You too, Tom. Take care of yourself. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was uh, super. And, of course, bring us throughout the summer. Absolutely on wheels. Uh, let's go to line number one. Say good to the PC member for Conception Bay, East Bell Island. He's the official opposition leader as well. Of course, that's David Brazel. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to get on and, and talk to your listeners about uh, important issues that face all of us in this great province of ours. I want to first touch on a uh, press release that I put out yesterday uh, regarding the uh, recent announcement by Equinor on doing some more exploration on the Flemish Pass. That's encouraging. Um, we know what happened the last number of months uh, when there was some uh, delay 
uh, discussions here with Equinor on some of the exploration that they're doing as part of the process and the Beta Newark development as, as part of that. So to see that the oil and gas industry uh, is starting to get some attention again is positive. I mean, we all got to realize the importance it has for the economy of Newfoundland and Labrador and for this country. It's not just that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians benefit from this. I mean, every citizen in this country benefits from our offshore development as part of that process. You know, what we've been asking for is to set a plan here of action as to what is the priorities or what is the plan on a go-forward basis for developing the offshore industry here. We know what the Federal Minister of Environment has said in touting that he would close down the oil and gas industry and there'd be no more new projects. You know, we're all cognizant of the environment. We're all cognizant of, of fossil fuels and the impact they have. But as we make that transition, uh, doesn't it make more sense that we have, you know, some of the lowest carbon uh, emission oil and gas in the world? Doesn't it make sense that we develop that while the world is still re reliant on it so that they're less reliant on, you know, Russian oil or Chinese oil or Venezuelan oil that has more carbon emissions and more dangerous to the environment as part of that process? So what we've been asking here, we know where the federal government stands on this, and it's not in the best interest of Newfoundland and Labrador. We want to know what the provincial government thinks here and, and where the premier is when it comes to lobbying uh, for making sure that the oil and gas industry uh, is still fluent and develops here as we make those transition into wind power and hydroelectric power uh, to do you know even more for the environment that, than we're already doing. And we're doing more than our fair share in this, this province. That's sure. one of the issues I wanted to talk about, Patty. But, I mean, you know, wind, until there's some offshore wind projects where the regulatory regime, royalty regime is still underway, it's still being worked on. The other wind projects on land, of course, are for a much different business model than anything but contributing water royalties or taxes and jobs because it's all for export. So when Minister Gibo talked about it, talking about the fact that there still be need for oil, industrial, commercial applications for sure, even when we, the government talks about net zero by 2050. But he also went on to say that they won't be approving any exploration or production in fields that are not already having well understood uh, recoverable oil, which we know we do. I mean, that Flemish pass is ripe with it. We are talking billions of barrels. So I don't know what that means for the future. And insofar as shutting it down, he says there's a cap coming. So when Equinor says part of their business model that finally got approved was some 138 emissions mitigation measures, I would imagine that's where the future is. Whether or not there's ever going to be another uh, field uh, approved, I don't know. But there's already one out there that is approved. My question would be, how attentive do we think the oil companies are to a real firm concern on emissions versus profitability? The cost to explore, the cost to drill, the cost to produce. Because even if you hear from Equinor, and this exploration next year is absolutely directly tied to hopes for Beta Nord, because Beta Nord is not one well at six. And so this might be their way to try to make it more financially appealing to themselves and their shareholders. But what do you make of that concept? Is it emissions driving their concern, or will the, just the best projects uh, continue or move forward based on profit? What do you think? Well, you know, you would hope that the uh, the industries here are good corporate citizens and that they balance everything out from, you know, their investors to the impact on the environment to ensure that their workers are taken care of from a safe perspective and, and well paid and that they pay their fair share to the taxpayers uh, within the jurisdiction that they're doing their drilling as part of this process. So, but what I think is the instability here is no real concrete long-term plan that makes sense. Tebow is saying one thing. We know, and I'll give credit to some of the MPs from Newfoundland Labrador, who are lobbying to ensure that the oil and gas industry continues, as we're doing here, and as I would hope the Premier of Newfoundland Labrador is doing. I do know 
know that the premiers and the other Atlantic provinces are still very positive on offshore development as part of this process. So there has to be a balance between the industry itself, the environmental regulations that are necessary to protect the environment, and the jurisdictions in which they're going to be doing the drilling. To do that, you've got to come up with a plan of action that works. You can't have one entity already threatening the industry and our province's livelihood here and the thousands of people who rely on, on the income from this and the communities themselves who benefit from it to say it's not going to happen. We're putting restrictions. It sends a message to an industry who already can say we can go somewhere else because the restrictions and that are not there. We're saying put in viable, as I call them, a mature conversation about protecting the environment, making good corporate citizens here of these oil companies. And I know, you know, the profits are uh, driven by their shareholders and all that, but there's a way of putting in proper legislation or proper policies and negotiating with everybody at the table because at the bottom line, if they don't get to drill, clean as oil, and, and, and our concept in this world now is about doing our part for the environment, why would they not want to be in a stable environment where we've got the best skilled trained individuals? They know there's trillions of dollars, and I would say the trillions of dollars worth of oil and gas uh, potential uh, on our offshores here. Why would they not want to invest in that process? The stumbling block may be having a plan of action that benefits the people of this province and also benefits those in the industry, while at the same time ensuring that these companies are going to be viable for the future. Do you think the tale will ultimately be told when we see how Equinor proceeds here? Because if they've got a green light, the only thing holding them back is their own business decision. Now, they say it's not quite as dire as it sounded at the Energy NL conference when they told us we were, they were going to shelve it for three years. To go back to explore seems to be a positive sign. It's in the same region, in the same area. It might be just part of the uh, subsea tiebacks as, as part of the larger scheme of Beta Nord. So if they don't proceed... Do you think that would give cause for anyone to think that we'll ever see another field produced? Because when you got a green light and they're talking about three, maybe five billion barrels of recoverable oil, a business model that breaks even at $35 a barrel, will that not indeed tell the tale? Oh, 100%, Patty, and you're totally uh, correct on your assessment on, on the whole process here and the data you're using. The benefit here and why it's encouraging, uh, you know, you know, I was at the Energy NL uh, conference when they sort of shocked the world, uh, the you know, oil and, and gas industry in Newfoundland and Labrador, by saying they were delaying this and, and had a you know, multitude of arguments as to why. And I give credit, you know, there was a multitude of us who pushed back. I did my national uh, uh, interviews with people and explained the benefits of uh, doing exploration in Newfoundland and Labrador and that the oil industry here can't control uh, what's in the benefit and the, and the best interest of the people of this province and the environment as part of it. So for them to come back after a few months, uh, it's an encouraging sign. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that they'll move forward. If they move forward, keeping in mind you know, the stake they have there and how big they are, that'll only encourage some of the other uh, big players here to come and keep the exploration going, which in turn keeps our industry going. From an environmental point of view, from my perspective, and I would think a lot of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, if we're still reliant on the oil and gas industry, which we are, would it not be in the best interest of this world to have the lowest carbon oil being produced? And that's coming right now from our offshore. So that's a, it's a positive right across the board. Uh, you know, but again, my emphasis here is ensuring that the provincial government uh, push the federal government and get a collaborative plan here. That makes sense. So I've offered the premier, I said, I'll go to Ottawa with you, uh, you know, to try to lobby and show strength in numbers. If it's just a citizen cheerleader to show that we support the oil and gas industry collectively in the House of Assembly. Uh, it may not be the view of the NDP, but I guarantee it's the view of the Progressive Conservative Party in New 
Newfoundland and Labrador. And again, all of this is going to have an impact on we know what's going next. The carbon tax here, uh, the clean fuel tax, that's having an impact, and they're using that as a crux to argue why the oil and gas industry needs to shut down. That's having a detrimental effect on the people of this province, and we're seeing it already uh, in the number of calls that we get from people who just can't pay their bills anymore, the increase on the cost for home heat fuel, and we haven't hit our coldest season yet. Look at the impact that's going to have, Patty, on our citizens. Yeah, I mean, it seems the provincial liberals are not opposed to oil, though. I mean, $300 million in uh, royalty relief back at Terra Nova, you know, the monies of the cash on the barrel head and some of the other policies and programs, and I can't get into their minds. I, I'm not a mind reader, nor am I ever in a caucus or a cabinet room, but we'll see. Uh, before we run out of time, there are members of your party concerned with the announcement of the new high school. Of course, Mr. Din talking about the fact there's 1,500 students bust out of uh, paradise each day to go to schools elsewhere compared to 300 in your community that you represent as the member. So your thoughts on the fact that Paradise was top of the list forever today. The district didn't even have Portugal Cove St. Phillips on the list, but lo and behold, they get the announcement of a new high school. Your thoughts? Well, Paddy, I'm going to do a bit of history lesson here for a number of people and correct a few things around what the district, the present district are saying versus what was a priority before. When I was minister responsible for infrastructure and Paul Davis was premier, on the priority list when we met with the school district was a high school and junior high for Paradise and for Portugal Cove St. Phillips because of the net growth that both of them had, uh, because of having a holistic uh, school system within their own community and having an independent school system and because of the feeder systems of the school system uh, were outside of the uh, the geographic area of that community. That was a priority. When the Liberal administration took over, we noted the junior high in Portugal, St. Phillips, had already been started prior to government changing. So there was nothing they could do to stop that at the time. That got completed. It opened. It's now at capacity and beyond. Because Portugal, St. Phillips, like Paradise, is a growing community. I want to go back a bit. I got to need to correct. I'm also one of the representatives for the community of Paradise. I owned the largest part of that when I first got elected. Because my district has grown so much, I now, because Portugal, St. Phillips has grown, I own less of, Port of uh, Paradise than I did at the, at the beginning. But all three M, uh, MHAs at the time lobbied to have a high school and a junior high uh, for Paradise. Saw the value of it, still see the value of it, still lobbying. Uh, you know, Paul Din, as uh, you know, one of my uh, critics, is out doing it, and as a member for there, as, is promoting it. I've already done it, social media, and promoted it on, on the uh, mainstream media about the importance of having one there. The difference here is, when the government took over, they cancelled the junior high in uh, the middle school in Paradise. We we fought. All of us fought, particularly the PCMHAs for that district, fought to get the junior high built. No different than we are now. It's a, it's a necessity. The difference in Paradise may be, had they done what they were going to do at the beginning, I don't think there would be one high school in, in Paradise. There probably would be two, like there is in Mount Pearl, like there is in CBS, because of the uh, sheer size of the uh, uh, individual students that would be necessary. So you don't have one massive school as part of that process. What got dropped here is the school district, for a number of years, did not prioritize it for whatever reason. Reason. And I don't know what they prioritized when it came to schools because there was very few schools built. Coley's Point was on our list to be built as a priority thing. Only got done a couple of years ago because they delayed it. So the misinformation that the school, present school district is putting out uh, dispels what really was the priorities a number of years ago by the school district as part of that process. What I did since 2018, and people say, and, you know, I've got to um, defend the premier on, on this situation, which won't happen very often, but I, I need to do it to be fair uh, to him. In 2018, 
I have letters, and I'll post all those, from ministers. And the minister at the time was Al Hawkins, who is not even part of this administration anymore, uh, where the justification in the meetings I had with the school district and the school board outlined the need for a high school. At one point, I had one of the ministers come to me and say, how would we finance this over what period of time? Because I had been a former minister responsible and I'd built a multitude of schools, I managed to outline to them the process where they could fund this over three fiscals. So it wouldn't be a financial burden to the people of the province. And, and the transition would work for the community. But at the same time, the caveat was always there that Paradise also needed that. Paradise has grown so much in the last seven to eight years that now you may have to look at two high schools to be able to do it geographically and keep the numbers where it needs to be. 100% support Paradise having that. Should have been already there seven, eight years ago when it was proposed. Uh, Paradise, this is not between Paradise and Portugal. Cove. Both needed. Both should have them. And I'm now lobbying the minister, and I know Paul Din is doing the same thing, uh, for Paradise to have its uh, high school or maybe two high schools, depending on the uh, configuration and the necessity as part of that process. Portugal St. Phillips deserves it, and so does uh, Paradise, and so does a number of other communities need the infrastructure to offer proper education. So trying to make this political by Jim Din and them, uh, to me, is an embarrassment for, from an educator's point of view uh, to be doing that. It should be focusing on, is there a need for it? And yes, there is. I don't, begrudge, I don't begrudge the call of a high school. As everybody knows, I have a familial attachment with that community. Uh, and I guess if there was only going to be one built, and whether or not something should have been done years ago, the fact of the matter, it wasn't. And so if there was only going to be one high school in this region built, I guess the fundamental question is, which community has the bigger need for? I mean, Paradise, quickest growing community, Atlantic Canada, 20% of the population under the age of 14. So that's, I don't think that's misrepresenting the data or the facts. No one can dispute maybe there should have been two schools built, but the fact of the matter is there's only going to be one school built. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, David. Thanks for the call. Not a problem, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. David Basil, PC member for Conception Bay, uh, Conception Bay East, Bell Island, and of course the leader of the official opposition. Let's take a break. Rob, you're next to talk about the roads. We're out in CBS. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Happy Friday there, Patty. Happy Friday. Couldn't be better said. Yes. So anyways, yeah, no, I want to talk a bit about the roads in CBS here. Um, more specifically, um, Seal Cove, where, where I'm to. Um, you know, like there was all these numbers put out that, uh, you know, the government's putting out, yeah, the road work and stuff like that. But the, there's nothing done on these side roads here ever. Um, we've got a bridge here in Seal Cove that the the expansion joints are coming out so much that they're pretty much going to split tires off of people's vehicles going over now. Um, I, I, it's just unbelievable, like in the whole road, in through Seal Cove and Garden Road and stuff like that, um, it's not maintained whatsoever. They put a bit of a coal patch down here and there on the bridge, and what happens is, is people drive over it and it just pushes it down through the bridge. It does no good whatsoever. And it's 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 really in quite a state. And what's going to happen is is the the bridge is not going to collapse. I wouldn't say collapse. It's it, the structure's all right, but you're not going to be able to travel across it because you're going to get you know your tires are going to go through. And I just like to know like what's happening. So if it's a bridge, it's provincial responsibility. But the road, this sounds like a municipal road, is it? It is a municipal road, you know, and and that's atrocious too. Like you just. You know, it's you're driving a an obstacle course when you're trying to go through it to dodge uh, the potholes here and there, and that's you know that's nowhere new. That's everywhere here on the island. 
um, pretty much in the small communities and stuff like that. But this bridge is in absolute disrepair and it needs to be really addressed. And I don't understand why council has not, or if you said it's provincial, so why, why, why the province is not been brought into it. Yeah, the bridge work would be part of the provincial responsibility. The asphalt on either side of a side road in a municipality is very likely the municipality's responsibility. And of course, we've heard the uh, province talk about the unprecedented spend in road work this year, $225 million this year, $1.4 billion over the course of the next five construction seasons. But that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to even remotely attend to every stretch of road that absolutely is in dire need of repair. No, exactly. You know, like, you know, I drive, you know, I got a cabin up in, on the, uh, off the highway and I drive up through Holyrood and that road is just absolutely atrocious. And that's supposed to be main highway. And, you, you know, you can't drive that, you know, you're beating your vehicles out. But like I said, this bridge in Seal Cove, it's, it, it's going to start, the tires are going to be starting taken out. And it's just a horrible mess. And like, it's not, it's not on scene, you know, like uh, counselors and everything like that drive over it. And why can't they do anything about it? I don't know. I actually have reason to be out in that neck of the woods, uh, not next week, but the week after. So just for curiosity, sometimes I like to be able to see what people are talking about on the show with my own two eyes, just to see how bad things are. And I appreciate the heads up here this morning, Rob. Road work is always going to be part of these conversations, right? And where responsibility lies and how roads are prioritized and how many bridges need to be replaced or need to be repaired. And there's a bunch of those around, too. Uh, Anything else you'd like to say this morning? No, no, I just wanted to keep it short and then uh, just come on, guys. Let's, let's get things done. <laughs> Fair ball. Thanks for the time. Okay, cheers, Patty. Take care, Rob. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, I think the recognition is there that the roads need an awful lot of TLC. Some need to be completely repaved and redone. And you've seen all the pictures. You know, the Route 460 used to be the Northville one. Terra Nova comes to mind. I mean, it's completely out of control how bad that is. And yet $225 million is a lot of money. It's much more than they've ever spent before. Uh, it will indeed eat up much more of the gas tax than it was ever spent before. And of course, the gas tax was created provincially to deal with specifically that, road and bridge repair. So... billion over the course of the next five years, then people will factor in what they deem to be the politics of pavement. You know, where the priority lies based on who holds the seat of power, how much of a role that really plays. Well, I guess that argument has been fairly convincing over the years. Uh, Dave, I'll try to uh, get a break on time here. Bally, you stay right there. Wants to talk about the impact instructions having on her business. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Bala. You're on the air. Hi. And I apologize Um, for saying we'll talk with her after the program. Welcome to the program, sir. Um, so, as you know, my name is Bala. I'm, I'm like, uh, we have a restaurant, uh, a cafe in Duckwood Street um, that's in the corner of the War Memorial. And it's 183 Duckwood Street. And because of the recent constructions at the War Memorial, like our business has been badly disrupted. I would say we lost a lot of revenue. And we've been losing a lot of revenue. And like, 
like majority of the access to the cafe is blocked and like the roads are blocked parking is blocked and like uh, our neighbor whiskey barrel he knew about this and he closed the business but he they opened only like few months ago so they didn't like they still took a lot of hit but they closed but we've been operational since september 2021 like almost two two years now and it's a family-run business we put our all our life savings into this and like looks like if this continues we're going to lose everything and our lives will be miserable yeah. i'm familiar with the madras cafe uh so bella describe or paint the picture about access like where can you actually still get to your cafe how okay so uh like people walking from uh, Duckwood Street, like our main uh, main business was from the pedestrians, right? Like so, the sidewalks are closed now, and like the crosswalks are closed, and like the access ramp uh, is closed. They blocked the access ramp, so no wheelchair access there. And the stairways is like closed uh, from Water Street to the Duckwood access is closed. Like when when I say closed, it's very minimal, and. Um, and like slowly, I believe that they're going to close the stairways as well. And there is absolutely no parking. And plus, uh, there's only one way that I could get the customers from. And like, because of this construction, they put all these barricades and like all these grills and everything that's blocking the whole uh, like visibility of the restaurant. Like our cafe is uh, in the corner of the building. So it's, it's, if you like, if you see it, like, uh, because of this construction, the whole visibility of the cafe is blocked, and like, like food traffic has been like, um, we have no food traffic at all. People who the business that we get is from the people who who, who knows us, but uh, this is like the peak season, right? Like when tourist season and with cruise ships and tourists coming in, uh, our main business is from pedestrians who walk around the streets of Duckwood Street or Water Street who see the signboards, they come and get a grab a coffee, but that's that's dead now. If you if you ask me, like we lost about eighty to ninety percent of our revenue a day, and we are in the verge of closing now. Bala, do you, in your estimation, is there a way for access to be done safely, much more closely to what it was before? Because in construction zones, of course, there's a lot of liability concerns. So do you think or see a way for access to be improved? Uh, like, they, like uh, to be honest, I have no idea about this construction and stuff like that. So like, and we are new here. We are immigrants, as I said. Like, we put all our life savings into this. And... Uh, like they are doing construction in the war memorial just close to the cafe there uh i know like these are like provincial uh programs that's what they said this is a provincial project we reached out to the city we reached out to the mayor but they had they said like they have no control over this they sent us to the they gave us contacts for the project like the provincial project uh, manager or something we tried to get in touch with them no answer and like they blocked everything right like uh, there's no there's very limited access to the cafe and like loud construction noise and like uh everything closer to the cafe is like um we lost everything and uh, they closed the access ramp too and they closed the sidewalks everything and like the whole stretch the parking lot has been taken out like they put huge barricades and yeah it's it's like um it's like uh, taking away all the access from us, right? And we are the only business that's been hit the most because we are on the corner of that. Uh, we just, we are very close to War Memorial. So 
we we took the more major hit there. Yeah. Were you told it would be this way? Uh, we knew that there's going to be construction happening, but like I never expected that this this is going to impact our business like this this really badly. But because like, as I said, like we it's we are an incorporated business, and like uh, we like if if there's a construction happening, like uh, if it's impacting people's lives, so something someone has to take responsibility of that. Like we we've been like trying to reach to people and officials, but we are not getting any proper response on this, right? Like, and my landlord he tried, but uh, his his part as well, but he's not having any luck either finding like getting to people. And like luckily, I put a post yesterday on Facebook, and David from your VOCM he contacted me saying like you can go on air and talk about. Yeah, sure, you can. And I understand the business concerns, of course. Life savings into a business that's losing 80 or 90% of its revenue daily is, of course, a, a brutal situation. Let me ask you this. Given that the War Memorial, the National War Memorial, will be a sacred ground for many, and, you know, the update or modernization or renovation, then including the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, for many people, this would be really an important place. Are you concerned at all about potential negative backlash that when we're talking about a war memorial versus business interest? I hope you understand what I mean by the question. Some people will say, this is important work. Implications are going to be what they are for the course of one summer. Have you thought about that? Do you think that's a potential problem for you? Uh, so th- I, I, to be honest, like we are like we are normal people, right? Like, we I, are, I, like- I understand. We like we like as I said, we put all our life savings into this, and we have families. I have two children that I have to worry about, and there are like seven employees working in the cafe. Looks like everyone is going to lose their job, and we are going to lose all our life savings into this. And I understand, like uh, it's a provincial um, uh, project. It's like war memories. War memories. Uh, memorial is like sacred to a lot of people, and I. I I respect that too. Like they've given their lives to save us and stuff like that. Like, but that's completely understandable. My point is, uh, this cannot affect people's life too, right? Like, this is taking away people's life as well. Like that, someone has to take care of that too, right? Like, someone should be responsible for that. Like, like no one's like we are an existing business there that's close to there, and no one took the efforts to talk to us about this, or no one said like we are going to help you this way, or we'll we'll work out something. No, nothing at all. And um, all of a sudden, one day when I just like I take supplies in the morning, when I went there, like whole parking has been locked, everything has been locked in one day, and like no information or nothing, and yeah. It's it's like crazy for us. Like, and to be honest, like we we reduce our uh, store hours. Uh, like, it's not even ten days since they started, and they say it's going to last for a year now. And by the looks of it, uh, like we're not even able to pay our staff, so we have to reduce hours and stuff like that now. And like by the looks of it, if this continues, we will be closing down like pretty soon. I understand your concern. Uh, sir, do you have any sort of insurance protections for unforeseen losses? Because there are things out there where businesses can kind of go over their backside with things like this when these things happen. Do you have any such protections in place? No. No, sir. I understand your concern entirely. I hope that people who are in uh, charge of this project and the oversight of it, if there's a way for safe passage to be provided to your business, hopefully that's carefully considered. And I appreciate your time this morning. I wish you good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Bella. Bye-bye. I mean, I, I get the concern. You know, you got your life savings pumped into something, and because there's a construction project, 80%, 90%, and we're like we talked with Chef Todd Perrin yesterday, margins at the restaurants, uh, you know, as he described them, 
pretty bleak looking stuff and so a 90% hit on a daily basis is unmanageable uh, let's take a break when we come back plenty of time for you don't go away welcome back to the show okay let's go to line number four Alan you're on the air good morning Teddy how are you doing okay thank you how about yourself so so <laughs> better days what's going on sir uh, I have a daughter who has cancer and uh, just give me a second, Betty. <clears throat> uh, we've been trying to get a treatment for her. Uh, she has squamous uh, cell carcinoma, fourth stage cancer. Uh, she is after being to Edmonton and had surgery last half her tongue and her lymph nodes. And uh, she came back and she had radiation and chemo. And now the cancer has gotten to her lungs. <clears throat> so we're tr trying to get her. She, we've seen the cancer doctor here, Dr. Kelly. And she told her that there's uh, no treatment. And so we asked for a second opinion. And she told us not to waste her money. She has credentials from Sick Kids Hospital. And her opinion should be enough. Uh, so... We said, no, it's our daughter's life, and we're going to try anything we can to save her. Uh, so she had been back and forth to the cancer clinic there with her potassium low, magnesium low. Uh, we went in one day, uh, and she actually fell to the floor. She was so sick. And they gave her potassium and that and IV fluids. And... Uh, then they discharged her from the cancer clinic, and we said, well, you're going to discharge her? You just, she just passed out on the floor, you know? <clears throat> and he said, oh, there's nothing else we can do for her. And we said, well, she's not eating or nothing. And they said, no, they discharged her to our family doctor, Dr. Ramjanton. So when we went to see Dr. Ramjanton, because Chelsea was so sick, he said that he was notified by them and said that she was doing well eating and everything. And she wasn't, uh, when he seen her, he said she needs to go to Emerge. So he referred her to Emergency. We went to Emerge. Uh, they seen her and she, they said she had to be admitted. Uh, when she was admitted uh, to the oncology floor, she was admitted under a different oncologist. And then the next day after she was admitted, Dr. Kelly came in and said that she was taking over her case again. And... Uh, when when she was there, we were saying about a feed tube because she hasn't eaten in so long. And she said, no, it's too far long for that and wouldn't give her the feed tube. And they were going to discharge her again after they gave her fluids. And so we said, no, we're not taking her home till you do a swallow test and that. So he said, well, we can do it on an outpatient basis. I said, no, I'm not taking her home till it's done. And... Uh, we waited four or five days, and every day they come in and say, oh, you know, you could go home if you want it. And I said, no, not going nowhere until this is done. When they finally did the swallow test, speech pathologist, or think of a speech, does it? Uh, she come back and said, anything she drinks goes in her lungs. She said she needs a feed too. And then uh, while waiting for all this, one night she would attack her her beeper went off on her IV machine and she was attacked by a dementia patient in, in the room and my daughter was devastated and 
I found out there that on the oncology floor, half of our dementia patients, and I'll just say that, but I'll get past that because uh, my daughter was so afraid that she then went to St. Clair's and had a feed tube put in. Uh, so she got her feed tube in and everything, and we started looking. We asked uh, Dr. Lester and them about clinical trials because she's an oncologist, started looking after Chelsea. And we gave her names and that. Uh, they never ever contacted no one, so we had to do all our own research. We did our research. There was two trials. We sent all Chelsea's medical information. One is in Connecticut at Yale, and one is at Shum in Montreal. <clears throat> Uh, so we, uh, I should have said about our sur- surgery first, Patty, I'm sorry. Uh, my mind is racing here. No worries, uh, take your time. Chelsea had to go to Edmonton, and she had surgery there. They'd done robotic surgery. That way she never had to have her two jaws broke and sawed in and played it back together. Uh, Dr. Baran did her surgery. We ended up there. We thought we were going to be there for 10 days, and we ended up there for six weeks with complications. She was on a respirator for five weeks. And now we come back, and she's exhausted. Like, they they did her chemo and everything. Then we found out it was in her lungs. Then they said, try immunotherapy. We tried that. It's not working. So then I had to fly to Montreal, get her to Montreal, for an assessment for one of these trials, uh, and I couldn't get no help from the, the government here or nothing. They won't pay for nothing. Uh, Tom Osborne, uh, Dr. Fury, or Premier Fury, he never even responded to us. I mean, here we had to go pay for tickets to go to Montreal. She was up there, had blood work done and scanned. We had to come back home. Then she had to be back there again for the 14th. Uh, of August, we this we had to go pay for tickets to go back again. Uh, then she's there, and we were really stressed out because uh, they told us uh, that her blood was low, which no one ever told us here, and it could be an issue for the clinical trial. And so, b- before we run out of time, a couple of things: How old is Chelsea? Chelsea's thirty. And when you say the out-of-pocket expense, whether it be for into Ontario or Edmonton or what have you, is there something that you're hoping we can help with here this morning? Yes, I, I have a GoFundMe set up, and we're not, it's not doing so well. I mean, uh, but, and I went to the Lions Club in Paradise. They're only a small organization. When I first went away, they gave us a donation, uh, $1,000. Uh, I went to the government to try and get a lotto number to sell tickets to raise money. And they told me I had to go to a nonprofit organization. Yeah, that's right. I've, con- I've contacted these nonprofit organizations, Lions and CBS. They, want, they refused for me to be able to use their license because... They, they said they're afraid someone do an email transfer on Facebook. Sure, I said, I'll follow your protocol. They still wouldn't do it. Paradise Lines don't have a license. I, I work at Waterford. I went to Waterford Lines. They don't have a license. I've contacted Knights of Columbus. I've been three weeks now. Okay. And still haven't made a decision. Uh, so you're unable to get that level of help for a not-for-profit to take on the application for a lotto license. So give us the uh, GoFundMe address if people are inclined to want to try to help you, Alan, before we run out of time. Oh, uh, uh, just a second, Patty. I don't... 
I don't have that here with me. I tell you what, though, I'll put you on hold so I can get the one more caller on before the news. You give the information to David, I'll put it out over the air for you. Okay, I really appreciate it. I wish you and, and Chelsea uh, and the, everyone all the best. And I hope you're feeling better, too, bud. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. All right, uh, Alan's on hold, Dave. When he gives you the info, I will share it with everybody else. Let's go to line number five. Jesse, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Yes, uh, on Tuesday, um, I was traveling west on the Trans-Canada, of course, and when I got home, I found I was missing my wallet, of course, which has my driver's license and a lot of important things in it, mm-hmm. and I did stop at White Bay Restaurant there, which, of course, is the one with the gas bar, the convenience store, and, uh, and the restaurant, of course, and I'm not sure if I left it there or not. But I'm wondering if someone has uh, found that wallet, could they call uh, 709-694-2022 or 698-3764? And if there's no answer on uh, 709-698-3764, just leave a message there, please. Absolutely. So it might be at the uh, gas bar there in White Bay. And yeah. hopefully someone picked it up, and hopefully there's no big amount of cash in it. But it's just such a nuisance to try to replace all the ID, driver's license, and otherwise. Yeah. So yeah. if you exactly. picked it up and you want to reunite uh, Jesse with her wallet, 694-2022 or 698-3764. Fingers crossed. Now, Patty, there was a lady on, uh, my friend called me, and she, there was a lady on uh, yesterday, I think it was, but it wasn't on your open line because I checked this morning, but it may have been on Linda's, maybe. Okay. And uh, she had found the wallet, and she was trying to get in contact, I guess, with uh, the person who had lost it or whatever. But anyway, Patty, hopefully that uh, somebody will pick it up. Yeah, we can figure that one out. If uh, that person was on with Linda, we can find that number, make a quick call, and see if it does indeed match your first name on that driver's license, and hopefully we'll get yeah. it back to you. Okay, thank you, Patty, very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. You too, Jesse. Okay, bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. All right, we'll see what we can figure out there. Uh, Dave's still speaking with Alan to get that additional piece of information, which we'll share right after we come back from the news. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tina Olivero. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. I'm here today to talk about my son, Ben. Right off the bat, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. Thank you so much. Yeah, everybody's been just, you know, so many messages, especially from moms who are going through the exact same thing. Moms and dads, I've heard from over 700 people going through the exact same thing as I did with Ben. Tell us Ben's story. First off, tell us about Ben, and then we'll get into the uh, the circumstances leading to his overdose. Yeah, Ben was um, a beautiful, gentle giant and absolutely amazing human being. Um, when he was 15, I, you probably remember, I ran in the election, and we were just decimated with media and everything that happened, and Ben started being bullied in school which had never happened. People should be able to be free to step up to leadership positions. That's problem number one in our province. Um, And, you know, it's absolutely disgraceful that that happens to our people in the media. Um, Ben started showing all kinds of issues, walking the streets and being bullied in school at that time. 
and from there he started uh, he tried pot and we have he had a genetic disposition um, for bipolar and immediately when he tried pot he was his brain was hijacked and I've spent six years trying to save his life keep keep him off the streets because he went from pot to chatter to chatter to coke from coke to crack to crack to opioids and ultimately he he lived an absolutely horrific six years on the streets in shelters um, trying to get help in rehab detox and ultimately jail as well because nobody diagnosed him with his underlying mental illness which could have been done at any juncture in in the in his um, illness um, but we have an epidemic of anosognosia here and that's the inability for people to actually self-reflect and think that they're sick. So the fallout of all of our homeless is that they don't even believe they're sick, and that's very common in mental illness. So why would someone step up to getting help when they don't even see that they're sick? I mean, would you go to the hospital if you didn't believe you were sick? And that's where they are in their minds. And it's a neurological affliction, and it should be diagnosed with anybody whose life who is unmanageable and is a danger to themselves but they missed the boat with Ben when he went to rehab they missed the boat with Ben when he went to uh, the boys home in Whitburn uh, detention center they missed the boat when I took him to the hospital over time and time again they missed the boat when he went to jail so diagnosis for anosognosia diagnosis for mental illness should be at the forefront of all of that and right now our number one issue in the province is mental health and addiction and it's because there's not early diagnosis at all of those touch points and we're not taking care of people who are dangerous to themselves and others and if we did it might cost us a little bit with diagnosis up front but it would save us a hundredfold with the fallout on our streets and how it's impacting tourism how it's impacting our health care system so it's just we've had enough i've heard from over 700 uh, parents that are just beside themselves with this same th- thing and they're watching their kids. It's like watching a freight train, putting your kid in front of a freight tra- train that is not going to stop. And we uh, we have lost, as far as I know, at least somewhere between 13 and 15 people from overdose in the last 30 days. And it's completely unacceptable. And we need to get it out in the open. That's why I developed um, Ben's Law group, book, uh, group on Facebook. And there is 2,200 people in there in the last two weeks with stories just like Ben's. So if you go there, it's called Ben's Law, um, The Human Right to Live Addiction-Free. And you'll see everybody's story there outlined. People are finally feeling free enough to speak up since I spoke up and telling the actual truth of what's actually going on and trying to get help. People keep phoning me from from jail, from um, hospital, trying to get help. And why are they calling me? It's because I'm the only one speaking up about it at this level. And they, they're exhausted from trying to get help, just like I did with Ben for the last six years. So the fact that there was no formal diagnosis is one is a big part of Ben's story. But what we really don't know is you know who the people are who are finding themselves overdosing whether they are revived with an naloxone or otherwise because 
part of this issue here is that the drug supply is just so deadly. So you, some of these overdoses might indeed be someone who's not struggling with a massive, overwhelming, life-consuming addiction. It could be someone who's able to use uh, some of these drugs in some recreational few times a year type of thing. All of a sudden, what they thought they were using had a deadly dose of fentanyl, and they're dead. So exactly. there's a lot to this. It's, you know, it's supply, it's yeah. harm reduction, it's uh, safe injection sites, it's diagnosis I, formally. I mean, there's just, there's a lot to these big stories. I spoke to a fentanyl expert from Edmonton a week and a half ago, and he said, we don't realize it, but fentanyl is in everything. It's in the pot, it's in the hash, it's in the cocaine, and it's very highly addictive, and therefore people's lives are unmanageable, and they don't know why. Three, three out of ten people smoking pot will end up in pot-induced psychosis because, you know, maybe their pot is laced with fentanyl, maybe they are predisposed with mental health issues, but that's a, an alarming figure. And since legalization, we, we currently have four times more pot-induced psychosis in the hospitals. That's the fact. T- Tina, so, where does that number come from? Because people have told me that, but have been unable to give me something to read a bit more about that because the pot numbers, I mean, there's not even an uptick in usage of uh, marijuana since it was legalized. Yeah, all you have to do is call the psych ward at um, the Janeway, and they'll give you that figure. Okay. Yeah. So, my, you know, we're having a rally on this coming Wednesday for all of the people who are affected by mental health and addictions. And as far as I can see, it's one person in every single family in this province. That statistically is where we're at. And you know, people are just exhausted without help, and that's a direct result of not having early diagnosis. It's a direct result of the drug, drug supply being tainted. Our police are so busy chasing after people with mental health and addiction issues that are undiagnosed that they can't even get to their regular jobs, and that is wrong across the board. So if we don't catch it, we're going to ruin our tourism. You can forget about it. Yesterday I saw a man walking down the street half-dressed, peeing on that building in, in front of all of our tourists downtown. Like, this is everywhere. So I'm asking people to speak up, put your pictures and your videos of what's actually happening on Ben's Law page. Show show up and speak up about what's actually occurring, because that's the only chance that we have of changing this. And stop our kids from dying. Like, that, that statistic of the number of overdoses is outrageous. And people don't realize that the number one overdose in the province is cocaine. It's not fentanyl. So, you know, you can't even use naloxone with cocaine. Um, so those are that's our primary overdose. Next to that is cocaine with fentanyl, which you can actually use naloxone with fentanyl. And then the third is fentanyl itself. So, I mean, the the... You know, the message is don't do any drugs right now because it's tainted and over the long term you may get addicted. Um, But more so, every single person is dealing with the aftermath of inaction and in diagnosis. And the cost to the province is unbelievable. There's something like 30,000 people on Suboxone right now in the province. And not only are they on Suboxone, many of them are also on cocaine and they're also on meth and they're also on weed with Suboxone, and that should never happen with to our with our taxpayers' money. Never should we be like enabling that kind of use. We have a province of enabling, and we need to stop that, get people early diagnosed and get them the help they need, and I want to create healing homes to do just that. And I, I'm raising my own funds because we, we're not able to rely on uh, the current system to solve it. 
My condolences once again, Tina. I thank you for your time this morning. Be well. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, we're looking forward to speaking with you, of course, the topics. Sometimes we get... Uh, into one or another and maybe dominate some of the program so and i say this every now and then feel free to share a little good news it'd certainly be good for me i'm sure it'll be good for the listeners hopefully it'll be good for you to tell that good news tale or whatever you want to talk about you pick up on something you heard bring a new topic to the uh, airwaves we're looking forward to that so if you're in the st john's metro region it's 709-273-5211 elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626 we're taking a break and then we're coming back Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Just on to uh, call just to report a motor vehicle accident that's on the highway here by Irving, just exiting the city. Please do. What's, what do you see? Yeah. Uh, I couldn't see a lot. I, I just sort of came upon it after it had happened, but traffic is backed up under the overpass, the CBS access uh, overpass there. So if anyone's leaving the city or, or heading out that way, they probably want to choose an alternate route for sure. But it looks like both lanes are blocked. And uh, from what I can see from the overpass, it's an accident that occurred around the Irving there. I'm assuming someone, you know, pulling up from the Irving or something, probably, you know, something happened along there. Easy enough to happen. So this is in the westbound lane, obviously. So if you were planning to head that direction, maybe even not only an alternate route, but maybe hold off for a while while they get an opportunity to clear it up. Yeah, for sure. The uh, the EMS teams and police and everything's on site right now, so I guess they're trying to get control of it. But right now, it seems like traffic is shut down both and both exiting lanes there. I appreciate the heads up for the uh, listening and motoring public. Thanks a lot, Rick. No problem. Thanks, Eddie. Take care. Bye bye. So Thanks. there you go. Avoid the area if possible. Hopefully, you're not already stuck in the delay, and hopefully, uh, whoever's involved in this collision are okay. Uh, so we had a uh, nice chat with a fellow named Tom earlier about the fact his grandfather worked for the Newfoundland Railway for some 50 years. His father worked with the railway for I think it was about four decades, and he's got a couple of interesting artifacts. Made a specific mention of what's going out in the Avondale Railway Station uh, project, and so join us online. Number one is I think. It's Emlyn Tuck, the Historic Buildings Researcher with that Heritage NL Association. Good morning to Emlyn. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Great. You? I'm good, thank you. Did you hear Tom by chance? Sorry? Did you hear that caller, Tom, by chance, mentioning the project that you're working on? No, sorry. I wasn't uh, I wasn't listening then, but we are working on the Avondale Railway Station. Um, we are, we're not currently uh, working on it right now but we're always open to more stories and more history if people know about it and uh, stuff like that yeah before we get into exactly what you're trying to achieve can you uh, share a story or two that you think the listeners will find interesting because there's lots of emotional connection with the railway still in this province even though it's been gone for decades so Mm -hmm. share what you can that you think people would be interested in um, one woman we interviewed, uh, Dorothy, so her mother, Anne, uh, worked at the Avondale Railway Station in like the 30s and 40s. She was actually the snack bar worker, which was one of um, my favorite um, jobs or positions to learn about in the station. Um, so she would prepare uh, sandwiches, biscuits, uh, candy bars, gum, uh, pop bottles, and like the old glass bottles. And she would uh, get those ready at the snack bar for workers, or sorry, for um, passengers who would come in on the really uh, on the trains and then she would also stay overnight there sometimes um, if it was a really late train or a really early train so she would stay in one of the buildings up or one of the rooms upstairs in the building 
there's a lot of great stories out there, and people are really quite proud of the fact that their mom or dad or nan or papa were involved with the railway. So what exactly is your association doing at Heritage and on the Avondale Railway Station? So we were contacted by the town to create a list of names that so they could put it up on inside or uh, on the side of the building. But from there, we realized that a lot of the history we had um, in our files was either not there or it just wasn't correct. So we actually took um, a lot of time to research more about the building and try and figure out um, the actual history and figure it all out. And then from gaining from the social media aspect and our surveys, we were able to gain more of the uh, what's like the faces to the stories and the names to the stories. So that was a lot of fun to do. So imagine most people can picture it's a Second Empire style building, two mm-hmm. stories. What were some of the gaps in information that you've been able to fill in? Um, so we 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 were able to figure out a, a better timeline for when it was built. Before we said 1870s and 1880s, which was pretty vague, but now we have um, a better idea. So we're thinking more like mid early to mid 1880s it was built, um, and then yeah. I'm trying to think of other things. No worries. And so paint us a mental picture once again. If we're talking early 1880s, prior to that, there was indeed the Telegraph Repeater Station was built. Yeah. So we, from our file, which was uh, all the information there that was just from our, the application for the project, for the building. So it said that that building was originally the repeater station, but from our research, we figured out that we don't actually think it was the original oh. repeater station. We think it was another building on the property and that, that the station there today is probably most likely the second building on the property. Interesting. This is a part of the uh, train conversation, and I would imagine just a land conversation that many people might not be familiar with, and it's the implication of the Reed, fa- uh, the Reed Newfoundland Company and what people refer to as the Reed Lads. What can you tell us about that? The Reed Lads? The, well, the Reed Newfoundland Company, because yes. there's such a thing as also the Reed Lands, where there's money still flowing to that family all these d- uh, uh, decades later about the amount of land that they own here that's been used for others. But I'll just stick with the Reed Newfoundland Company. Um, so they took it over, that station they took over in the... Um, the 1920s, if I remember correctly. And so they took it over from the Newfoundland Railway, and then they just ran it for, I think, till the 1940s they ran that. So it wasn't very long they had that station. Um, It was just basic. We didn't really delve into... uh, too much about the Reed family and their plans and stuff. Unfortunately, it was more just that station we were focused on. Yeah, they ran uh, freighter steamers, coastal passenger boats, had a big thing to do with the transportation industry in full here. Mm -hmm. Some of the lands, and they were given a contract by the government that gave them outright full control to operate that railway for 50 years unencumbered. And as a result, some of the land they still hold today, they see enormous royalties flowing to the family all these decades later. It's absolutely fascinating. Oh, okay. So when you look back in all the research that you've done, who are you still trying to find? What are some of the stories or gaps that are still yet to be filled? Um, we don't really, like we have names and stories of people, but there's only about 60 names we have. So that's really not that big of a number when you think about that it's been, that railway station was working for 
over 100 years, so we're always open to more names, more stories, because 60 names doesn't fill the, doesn't fill the gap, really. <laughs> no, well, of course, because there's been a lot of, I guess, unknowns associated with that particular railway station, and nobody has really taken it up the charge until mm-hmm. your group, as far as I can tell, you know, and I'm not pretending I'm a railway researcher, but I hear a lot of stories. People send me all kinds of content. Oh, so yeah. I fill in some of my own mental gaps on that stuff. Uh, final thought to you, Emily, before we say goodbye this morning. What else would you like us to know, or what, how can people contact you if they have something to share? Um, they can reach me at um, the, my email, so it's research at heritagenl.ca. Um, they can find us on any social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter. Um, and then we also do, we still have a survey, a uh, survey link. So that's on our Facebook. On a, uh, If you go to the Avondale Post, there will be the link for the survey. So if you'd like to contact us through that to put in any stories or any information you know about the Avondale Railway Station. Um, yeah, that's basically the ways you can contact us. I'm sure glad you made time for us this morning, Evelyn. Thanks. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. I'm going to talk historic uh, buildings researcher with Heritage NL specifically talking about the Avondale Railway Station this morning. Okay, uh, where do you want me to go here, Dave? Line number two to get us to the break? Sure, Dave's busy. I will make my own decision. <laughs> Line number two, Ron, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Just want, uh, that lady just talked about the railway brought back some good memories for me. Nice. Used to go down and get the train down to the station and run up for the summer with as kids. Maybe eight or nine of us piling into the train and going up for the summer. <laughs> I remember taking the school trips on the bullet, uh, yeah. and I was pretty young then. I, and I still only really have vague memories, maybe in out in Holy Road and going for a swim and then back on the train and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah I got a couple more years than you. Um, uh, we've got the Placentia Junction that way. That would be the run up. We've St. John's, we'd go up to the second mile post that was called, it was out the Argentia branch, and uh, Placentia Junction was the main stop up there before you branch off on the main line, and uh, it would take us, like, we'd leave here, like, it seemed like eight or nine in the morning or something, and we'd get up there about, like, five in the evening, like, it was pretty, uh, it was a freight train with a passenger car thrown on it, so it was a pretty interesting trip, like, Avondale stop, like, you know, down the siding and that is, is uh, bring back great memories, listening to that lady talking there. Love it. And I uh, might be able to pop I wasn't at the Avondale Museum, though. I might pop by. I got a few things might be of interest to him. Maybe I could pop up there. Yeah, easy enough to contact them to see what kind of interest and what kind of contribution you can make to their research. But, yeah, it's sure. fascinating to look back. Yeah, I, I recreated. We had a logbook that goes back to the 60s or something. I think we had actually, my father, we don't have it now, but I think he had actually a reed cabin. It was the first one at the second mile post. The walls were like... She seemed like they were like four feet thick from logs and that <laughs> over the years. Like it was a pretty only small little shack. It wasn't a cabin. It was a shack, one room like with four bunks and there were some memories up there. I tell you. Okay. But anyway, that's not what I called in about. What I called in about was hockey. Okay. And, uh, I see new hook on the news the other last night. Uh, walking around with the Habs jersey on. You Habs or Leafs fan? I can't remember. No Habs, I think are you? I'm a Montreal fan. Yep. Oh, there you go. Uh, see, did you see him walking around the room? They did like a promotional video on him and that. Did you see that? I did. Of course, I follow along pretty closely. Big fan. I've known Alex uh, since he was born. So, yeah, I've, I think he's got a great opportunity in front of him in Montreal. And, you know, interestingly enough, it was just yesterday that his junior team, the Victoria Grizzlies, decided they were going to retire and hang his number 18 in the rafters, which is absolutely brilliant. His sister scored for Canada uh, yesterday against the Americans down on Lake Placid in the three-game matchup between our development team and their development 
development team. So, yeah, I'm following along. I'm sure you sure, sure. Sounds like you are. And that's wicked. I never knew about the jersey going up and Abby scoring the goal. I never never knew about that. That's great news to hear. And, uh, but, yeah, what I was thinking, I got something, you know, we're in Newfoundland. Eh? Like, you know, I got buddies that are Habs fan. I'm not a, I'm not a Habs or Leafs fan. I'm Blackhawks. But I got a buddy that's a Habs. But I was just thinking, man, this is going to lighten things. Or not, I don't know, lighten is the right words. But the Habs and Leafs fans, there's going to be some racket in Newfoundland this year <laughs> over them games. Well, yeah. I think there always has been. I'm always curious as to whether or not there's more Toronto or more Montreal fans. I got a funny feeling there's more Toronto fans around here, but I just use it as a very fun, friendly rivalry. I don't live and die with every game, win or loss, but some of my buddies do. Oh, <laughs> man, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, just, it just seems like there's more Habs fans around to me because the Leafs fans tend to stay in the closet till they're doing good, then they come out and they disappear again. Like, crabs coming back and forth underneath the rocks and stuff like that, right? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, both sides have uh, some vociferous fans, I'll call it. Oh, you got it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks. I just thought I'd just pop that in there t- this morning and uh, appreciate your time there. Go, Habs, go. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> okay, buddy. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, my buddy Dan McGettigan. He's at Turnings. We're going to speak with Dan. Then wait times for long-term care beds. An interesting clipping from 1880. Mike wants to uh, talk about so that and more right after this. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Dan McGettigan. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Good, sir. I thought I just might say a few words, if you don't mind, about the issue of course addictions and mental illness that's been highlighted on the radio this morning. Absolutely. Go right ahead, Dan. Where do you want to start? And uh, as you know, we, we've talked about this, you and I, and turnings and so on, same things for years, but uh, uh, what what is good right now is that people are talking about it, and unfortunately some people have lost children, and uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's something that has to be talked about more. Uh, I, I really do believe there's more need for education and awareness. Uh, we've said it all before, but at the same time, you know, we got to nip things in the bud, diagnosis, assessments in schools, whether it's public school or highfalutin, I don't care what it is. The, you know, drugs, violence, you know, conflict is all around us, especially our children. All you need to do is turn on the television and see some woman with an infant in her arms and a bomb going off behind her. So we can't hide our heads in the sand. And it's here in our our province, not just in, in this town, in our province. And it's an evil that's eaten up our kids. And the costs are going to be unsustainable in the prison system and in, 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 in the problems of addiction. And so we need, the word is spread about a lot, but collaboration, faith communities, police, you know, bear associations, lawyers, court, you go on and on. We're all in this together. And one lady mentioned about a meeting at a Confederation building. That See, that takes gall and guts, and that, that's good. That's needed. And you got people phoning in who's lost children. So uh, what do we need to, to say, to see the seriousness of this? This is our communities we're talking about, our youngsters, and the loss to our society in lives and also in, in gifts that can be contributing to our society. So 
uh, I just reiterate that maybe people should really go and listen and speak if they want to and learn because we need to be aware of the fact like I've Mrs. phone in today and talked about fentanyl fentanyl is in everything mm-hmm. so we we got to be more aware like how, how long does it take to get to see a therapist I mean uh, Kevin Foley and I, attorneys, like we, we see guys one-on-one and uh, we work with inmate committees and, and, and uh, talk to parents. But trying to get, and because they get nowhere else to go in cases, but we're, like they need therapy. They need to get into issues, you know. And, and we've had doctors in, in high schools. I've had recovering offenders in high schools. All this can contribute. So I've I, been off for a little while, sick, but I'm back. And, and, and I wish I was... 59 instead of 79 because we need everyone rowing in in one way grabbing water together we need all hands to do that to make her go forward Patty and as a spoken well spoken as a legendary stroke or okay I don't know exactly why there has been more of a reaction from all levels of government and all of the committees and advocacy groups who, you know, join forces to put forward the collaboration you described. But here's just a thought, and this not to offend any one single person or a group of people, but even when we talk about conditions at the penitentiary and the need to build a new penitentiary and some of the issues with uh, those who offend and the reintegration in society, dealing with uh, recidivism and stuff, some people just don't care that and i think they that same thought is probably afforded to folks when we talk about addictions because they just view them as people who have made their own mistake they've made their own bed they have to lie in it but what gets lost in that conversation is what happens to those individuals impacts everybody in the community period whether it be the fact that they might be the one that breaks into the store where your young fella or daughter is running the till they might be in your house they might be in your shed they might be consuming uh hospital beds uh, prison cells it just has an impact to everyone. It doesn't matter if your family has been touched directly by drugs. At some point, or any type of addiction, at some point, it comes home to roost where you live. And when people can wrap their mind around that, maybe, just maybe, politicians will see that, okay, now the community is not only worried about health care and housing and industry. They're also worried about this, because now it, all of a sudden I understand how it impacts me. If people think like that, politicians will have no choice but to react, because right now, every now and then you'll hear an announcement, expanding services for adult treatment and acknowledging some shortcomings in mental health access and all the rest, but nowhere near the type of conversation that's required, given what's really happening. It's not just happening in certain little pockets of the city of St. John's. It's happening everywhere. And and your point is well taken. I mean, for years, you know, uh, if somebody committed a crime, well, you go to the lockbook, we throw him in the cruiser, we bring him to the pen, and so on and so forth. And don't worry, we're, he, you know, he's out of, out of the way. But he's coming back. So now we've got to be involved a lot more before that happens. You know, and, and right now we're working with, we always have, but I, I'm more serious now working with some uh, MUN professors in research, uh, Dr. Rieger Daly is one of them, and and to try to uh, to get to learn more so that we can involve more people. You know, uh, we have a a, a working co- committee together try to involving all kind of uh, people in court, people, uh, lawyers, and uh, faith community, and so on and so forth. And uh, we we want to to. Try to get conferences going uh, in the community later on when we when we have our act together here to involve people and make them more aware. 
that this is our community and we've got to involve ourselves. It's not like it was years ago. There's only a few problems here and there. The problems are hitting us right between two walls. And when you see people dying, I got pictures of people old eat all over my office, young people and, and older people, you know. And, and uh, God, it, it, it irks me that there's so much gifted people here. We should be working together more. Put BS and egos and agendas, agendas aside and get at it. You know what I mean? Uh, seriously, it's exasperating. You see, when your child is dying, somebody's son or daughter dies because of freaking overdoses. You know, we, we've got to really stop and think and focus and, and work together. A hundred percent. Dan, I always appreciate the time. Look forward to seeing you around. And you and Kevin and everyone else who does anything for turnings, I keep up the good work. I love it. Thanks so much. Take care, Danny. Hey, buddy. Bye-bye. You know, Dan McGettigan. Uh, another one before we get to the break. Let's go to line number five. Sid, you're on the air. All right, Patty. What a heady morning, I'm telling you, with all the different subjects you've been talking about. Um, the reason I'm calling this morning is I'm trying to find somebody that did a very big kindness to my wife, Linda Wolanski, when she was in the hospital in 2017 in December. She went into the hospital, and this person brought a very valuable uh painting slash poster to hang up as good luck over her bed. Unfortunately, my wife passed away a month later and I lost track of that kind person. So I'm trying to reach out now to find uh, this person that brought the poster and I forgot her name, unfortunately. So I'm asking the public out there if anybody remembers uh, Linda Wolanski and anybody that would have brought a poster, could you please call me at 895-7383 so I can return this uh, object to the person? It's really cool. So was this as a, a random act of kindness? I believe so. I think well. that's a very way, way to describe it. Okay, so if you remember or know who was responsible for bringing that poster in to look over uh, Sid's wife when she was in the hospital and our condolences on your loss, give him a call, 895, and I think it was 7383. Is that what you said, Sid? 3383, yes, and that's correct. Um, if I can just put in one more little tiny thing. Sure. You've been getting a lot of people calling in about information on disability aspects and dealing with the government. There's a website out there called breakingbarriersnl.ca, and it has a compendium of all the different sites that a person can go to in the different governments to get uh, information on disability uh, uh, money, uh, help uh, about the community. And it's a very good compendium and easy to go through as opposed to some of the government sites that we have. So that's Breaking Barriers NL? Yes, it is. I'll add that to the links that I provide when people reach out. Thank you so much, Patty. You have a great day, sir. You too, Sid. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. You do. Bye. All right, final break of the morning and the week. Yolanda, you're next to talk about wait times for a long-term care bed. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line four. Yolanda, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay, thanks. How you doing? I am hanging in there. Uh, we've had a rough couple of months, but uh, hanging in there. Um, I just wanted to talk to you. I heard someone on your show yesterday uh, talking about the waits for long-term care and the effects of, you know, the backlog of then of people waiting to get into hospital and that kind of thing. Yep. I just wanted to share a, one story with you that is a personal one that happened recently. Um, I'm speaking on behalf of like my family, I guess, I guess for my uncle. Um, my uncle has Parkinson's and uh, was in a care home here in 
the East End. And I had a fall and ended up in the hospital. So when he got in there, uh, they decided, you know, they treated him or whatever, and they decided to keep him there. He ended up, the day I went to see him uh, last, was he was in a hospital room for 233 days at that point. Um, so this is a man who has Parkinson's, and he had been juggled around from one room to the next. But the room that I saw him in, just to give you some background, was, I believe, to be a COVID room at one point. It had double doors to it that were tarped over, and they had white, like, duct tape or tuck tape or whatever you want to call it on the doors. The handles were falling off. Um, inside the room, there was um, a wall that was damaged. It also had some kind of a tuck tape or duct tape on it that was repairing the drywall, which would stick to him when he would roll over in the bed. Um, there was no TV. It was hot and humid kind of thing in there. It was dark. Um, it, he he referred to it as being, he felt like he was in a, a sane asylum, I guess, with the doors all tapped up and taped up and stuff. And they didn't even realize that there had been an intercom and camera in, in there. Not that anybody was using it. I'm not suggesting that they were using it. I'm just saying it was there and kind of like an invasion of privacy. Kind of, He didn't even realize it was there and it was aimed right at his bed, which, you know, honestly, I taped it over with some sticky tabs and some medical tape. So at least he felt that he had a bit of privacy in there. But he had... I just want to speak to the fact that he had a social worker in there who was supposedly helping him uh, get into a long-term care that he needed to be in. Um, he told me at some point he, he, he couldn't understand why she would run from him when he would see him coming when he tried to speak to her. She would run in the other direction. Um, raised a lot of red flags for me and my thought would be you wouldn't run from someone that you were really trying to help unless you really weren't doing much to help them and you didn't want to talk to them so that you'd have to say hey you know uh, we're not really doing much for you Um, I don't know but a man who has Parkinson's and um, was there all alone I mean in the last you know who knows how long any of us have but I mean with a disease like Parkinson's you really don't know um he had no supports there, no socialization, no activities, no stimulation, not even a TV. Um, poor nutrition, of course, because you're not supposed to live on hospital food forever, that kind of thing. Um, no feeling of security or belonging or being like home and settled. Couldn't leave for overnight trips. Um, when I got there that night, he was super depressed, so very depressed, started to cry. I mean, heartbreaking beyond, and he said he felt like he was in prison. And I made a comment that I don't know if uh, you are feel like you're in prison or not, but I think you might have been treated a little better if you were in prison, which is such a sad statement. Um, anyway, I spoke to his immediate family, and um, they they were they weren't sure what to do either. They just kind of said, "Well, well, everybody says they're doing what they can to get him moved." So I suggested to them through the jigs and reels that they. Excuse me. Reach out to an MHA or Minister of Health or Seniors Advocate or Last Chance Media, if that's what it took, because nobody deserved to be in a room like he was. It was it was heartbreaking, and I have photos of the room. I mean, there was like moldy stuff in the corner. The anyway, it was just horrible. And uh, one call to an MHA, God bless him, and um, next thing you know, he was moved the next day. Now, he is in the long-term care facility, the new one, the Pleasant View Towers. Okay. But he is in a room that he's not supposed to be in because he's in on the locked care, like for the dementia-type 
you know, locked care ward. And which is now, uh, which is really sad because I tell you, the first night I went to see him there, he told me he felt like he was in heaven compared to where he was, which is sad because it's not an ideal state where he is currently either because he's not, he doesn't need to be in that wing. And he's been actually, um, while waiting for a regular room, he's been actually kind of attacked twice by different residents there. He's apparently he was kicked in the stomach once and uh, hit in the face once, which, so now he is still, he's still in a, he's in a better situation, but not a great situation either. No, further thing from, just so I can get that number, you say he was in a hospital bed for 263 days before he got a long-term care bed? No, he was in 233 when I was there, and by the time we got him moved, I believe the number was 246. Man, oh, man. Or 248, one or the other. Regardless of 233, 246, or 268, doesn't matter what the number is, 200 and anything days is 200 and something days too long. Absolutely. And, and like, so now he's in the room, and, of course, the door doesn't lock to his room because it wouldn't because of where he, you know, in his appearance stuff. So now he doesn't feel safe. Um, he tells me he's a bit afraid to go to sleep and stuff because he, they wander in his room, which they would. So I actually had to try to, when I was there the other night, try to teach him if he gets worried like that, go into the bathroom because the bathroom is kind of like a two-door thing, one from each room on each side, and then you can go in, pull the doors to, and then you can push a, push the lock button inside. So I brought him in and, and try, did a trial and error with him a couple of times to make him go in, push the lock the care, <laughs> push the lock button, and then pull the emergency cord, like the call for help cord. In the, so I said, stay in here if you're concerned about your safety. Like, stay in the washroom if you can get there because sometimes you can walk, sometimes you can't. But if you can get in there, do that and pull the cord until someone comes to help you. But, I mean, okay, I appreciate the fact that they did move him to the long-term care facility, and uh, but really he needs a room where he can settle and feel safe. I mean, he, you know, this is ridiculous on every level. It's only halfway. It's only half settled. Uh, I appreciate you telling us about it, but I mean, we know that there's priority given to people who are in a hospital bed for a long-term care bed. It might not be at the facility you choose, but even when you get there, if you don't end up in the appropriate wing or ward, then we've only half done that person and their family justice. Uh, Yolanda, I'll give you the final word before I take one more quick call before I run out of time. Okay. Uh, anyway, I just want to say to people that, uh, you know, I know there's people uh, in the system doing their best sometimes to, to help people, and they are working within a restraint of what they can offer you. However, you know, be a very polite squeaky wheel, because I've been told on s- several fronts that that is sadly the way that you have to try to get the wheels moving to help your you know, family or yourself or whatever the case may be. It shouldn't be that way, but sadly it is. So, you know, be vigilant and be an advocate, a very polite one, because, you know, people (laughs) don't reply to I don't respond to anger and that kind of thing. And it is frustrating. But just be polite and respectful and be an advocate, though. A hundred percent. You know, you can pick up the torch and be that advocate. And unfortunately, many walks of life, when you pick between the carrot and the stick, sometimes the carrot gets you where you want to go. I appreciate this, Yolanda. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Final word of the morning goes to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. I only keep you a minute anyway. I know we're running out of time. I'd like to uh, send you a picture if uh, if it's all right with you, probably. Just have a look at. I got a newspaper back in 1888, which is 135 years come next month. And it's all to do with Water Street and stuff. At the time, you could buy like a ton of ice for $2.90, 15 bars of soap for a dollar, glazed coal, and everything else. 
and the print is as good as the paper is today. Very cool. There's. Uh, do you use Facebook by chance, Mike? Uh, no, I don't. Because uh, there's a bunch of pages there, like Old St. John's, there's newspaper clippings and all sorts of other fascinating materials. So I appreciate you telling me about this. What are you going to do with it? Uh, well, I had it for many, many, many years. I got to go back probably 30 years or so or longer. And actually, I don't know. I, uh, it's nothing to do with me because I'm not from St. John's and stuff. Okay. But I was thinking about putting it on by and sell just to see if there's somebody out there maybe or if there's any uh, value to it. Oh, I'm sure there's going to be interested collectors out there who would probably pay for it. What it's worth, I have no earthly idea. No. But things like that with historical significance, they have some sort of value attached with it. And simply because we cleared 12 o'clock, I've got to say goodbye, but I appreciate your time. I got in the uh, free folder album too, which is full-size paper. And like I said, it's three to four pages too, but I like to, uh, again, take a few pictures and uh, send them off to you. Just have a look. Please do. All right, Daddy. Thanks, Mike. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, we're out of time. Good show today. Big thanks to all hands. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk on Monday. Bye-bye.